I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Whoa! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman, a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa. Whoa. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to another Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, French Freeze. Cold French fries made by Mr. Freeze and spelled like Victor Freeze. Today I'll be chatting about the second animated film to come out of the series, Sub-Zero, a direct-to-video release that was meant to capitalize on 1998's Joel Schumacher flop Batman and Robin, which did so poorly it forced the release of this film to be delayed well after the newly redesigned season of the new Batman Adventures began. Later on, I'll sit down with Randy Rogel, the writer of the film, as well as other great episodes of Batman the Animated Series. He shares how the film came to be, changing the villain on the fly, and he also walks prospective writers through the process of writing a Batman episode step-by-step. But first, I'll sit down with stand-up comic Paul Jay to dig into re-watching Sub-Zero. But guys, before that even happens, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. Next episode will be the one-year anniversary of this podcast, and... I wanted to find a way to thank you guys. I am amazed at how much the show has grown and how many people actually listen to this weird and ultra-niche corner of the internet. A lot of you have asked if there's a way to participate, so I figured it was time to do a segment that includes anybody who's ever wanted to share their opinion about a Batman cartoon on a stranger's podcast that he mostly records in his closet and living room, but sometimes takes to an animation studio booth and makes it sound all professional. How? Well, send me a single tweet at BTAS Podcast with your favorite episode or memory of Batman the Animated Series or the new Batman Adventures, and it will be featured in a special segment. What makes it special, you ask? Well, you'll have to wait and find out, he answers. Okay, moving on to... Today's episode, Sub-Zero. Mr. Freeze resurfaces in Gotham and kidnaps Barbara Gordon as an involuntary organ donor in a desperate effort to save his dying wife, Nora. It's up to Batman and Robin to find her before the operation can begin, and it's up to Batgirl to escape an oil rig manned by a cold gun-wielding baddie, a slimy doctor and a lot of debt, and a couple of polar bears. Original release, March 17th, 1998. 
written by Randy Rogel and Boyd Kirkland, directed by Boyd Kirkland. Music by Michael McQuistian, animation by Coco and Dong Yang, which to me, in this moment, sound like a couple of gorillas. Featuring all your favorite voices, plus guest voices, Michael Ansara as Mr. Freeze, the late and great Mary Kay Bergman as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. You also might know her as Sheila Broflovsky, as well as a slew of other South Park characters in the movie, as well as the first few seasons. Uh, we've also got George Zunza as Dr. Gregory Belson. I know I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Zunza, not Belson. Uh, he also plays Scarface in The Ventriloquist in the TV show. And Rahi Azizi as Kunak, the little boy who serves as the empathetic heart for the movie. Hell, you've even got Simpsons vet Tress McNeil and Martian Manhunter voice actor Carl Lumley filling in with additional voices. What a cast! So, I'm gonna be honest, I hadn't watched Sub-Zero for quite a while, and before revisiting it, I remember feeling like it wasn't bad, but it also wasn't anything to write home about. Well, after a solid rewatch alone with my cat, we both agreed that it holds up rather nicely. It's a little on the short side, but any story that features BTAS's take on Mr. Freeze as the star and anti-hero is worth your 70 minutes. He's a character with pathos, and for that reason alone became a fan favorite in the DC universe at large. Sure, there's some goofy 90s CG, but luckily for us, the majority of the film is 2D, and the animation is on model and solid across the board. The action in particular is engaging and really well staged, with some exciting set-piece battles, such as Polar Bear Attack at a Gala! Dick Grayson's wild, wild motorcycle pursuit, and the never-ending oil rig explosion. It's a straightforward story with an emphasis on Batgirl being a bat-ass, pun obviously intended, and it's nice to see a strong female protagonist take the lead during an era of being relegated as backup. If anybody deserved his own animated feature, it's Victor Freeze, so it's nice to get to spend a little more time with the character after only appearing twice beforehand and turning into a head with spider legs afterwards. So, with that out of the way... It's time for... Today's fan, Paul J. Paul is a friend, a stand-up comic, and a self-professed Batman Forever defender. You can see him perform in Los Angeles and follow him on Twitter at PaulJComic. He's a smart and insightful guy, a consumer of comic booky things, and just a real joy of a human being. So, let's get into it. Do the sneaky. We're already recording. Uh, oh my god, day. I feel so casual and <laughs> at ease and stuff. But we will probably use this part of it now. Oh good. Well, it's nice to be here, Justin. Thank you. How natural do I sound? You sound very Extremely? natural. Extremely? Okay, good. Yeah. Good, I like Thank it. you, Paul. <laughs> so we kind of inserted each other's names in there just in case nobody knew which voice was which. It's pretty hard to tell the difference. Can I, can I tell you one of my pet peeves yeah. that has kept me away from a lot of podcasts that I've heard are really good? If the people who host the podcast are fucking voice twins with each other, that drives me bananas. Invisibilia. I can't. They did deal a bit with about that up top. They're like, you really? probably won't recognize our voices. We're going to try to help you, but I still couldn't really tell the difference between them by the end of the season. But I like the show. Yeah, I, I have to really like the show to be able to overlook the fact that I literally can't tell who is talking. Well, you'll hate that podcast, Voice Twins. <laughs> that actual podcast, Voice Twins. Uh, so we're here for Batman. <laughs> oh, oh, are we? Yeah. 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 Uh, so we are going to talk about Sub-Zero, the second animated film, direct is to video. I was going to ask if this was direct to video or if this was one of those stealth episodes. 
episodes of the TV show situations where, like, it's a movie that we coincidentally made one hour and six minutes long so we could break into three TV episodes. Like the world's finest episode. I don't know if you saw that when the Superman-Batman show crossed over. Never oh, mind. I, I, did, I did not see that one. Uh, well, I, they I, released I, it as a movie later. <laughs> okay. I, I was thinking, specifically, I was thinking of when Futurama came back and did those directed DVD yes. movies, but that were also ended up being broadcast on TV, chopped up into four episodes apiece. It was, it was, and yeah, and this, this I was wondering if that was one of those, but it, it just went straight to video. Yeah, this was commissioned uh, by DC because Batman and Robin was coming out. Oh, God. And so the listeners will soon hear the whole story in the next interview of how that happened. Uh, because it originally was not a movie about Mr. Freeze. So uh, it's, it's actually a pretty interesting story. But uh, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, but essentially it was, it was commissioned basically to coincide with the next Batman movie. But the movie did so poorly and was so damaging to the Batman franchise that they held off a year releasing this film. And so it came out after they had redesigned and started the new season of the series. So it kind of didn't make sense in context. Well, the context is another thing I was wondering about because... Here's my history with Batman the Animated Series. I I love it. I've seen a lot of them, but my understanding of the my my like my like number of episodes watched and my understanding of the continuity and stuff is a little spotty because this show started coming on every day after school right when I was just kind of aging out of sitting down to watch two hours of syndicated television every single day after school, which I did for a long time. I oh, was yeah. really into like the Warner animation had such a great run in the late eighties, early nineties with like Animaniacs and everything, Tiny Toons and everything. And I was solidly in the age group of like, like 10, like nine to 12 that just thought those were the, the funniest things I had ever seen. Right. And then, um, Batman, Tim Burton's Batman came out when I was 13 or 14. And this series followed pretty closely on that. And I always, I love Tim Burton's Batman movies and I, I enjoyed this show when I watched it, but, um, I just never sat down. Like it was syndicated. If I missed one, there's no DVRs or anything. I would never see it again until they looped back around right. all 26 episodes it aired again. So yeah, I do. you were 48 at that point. 48 a season? Uh, 48 years old. For, it it, it took that long. This is a bit. Uh, <laughs> it's always good when you have to explain a joke because it's so confusing uh, the way you're setting it up. Uh, walk me so through, let me break it walk down. me through what you just did. So there. you said it took a really long time uh, for the episodes to come back. So oh, if you missed it, and you hypothesized that that time was forty-eight. That years. many years. Yeah. So uh, obviously, a very funny joke doesn't need to punch up. Uh, will not be cut out. <laughs> gonna <laughs> we'll leave, leave this. Gonna leave all of this right uh, the hell I mean, where it is. I definitely will. <laughs> yeah. Good. Because no, my foibles. This audience. is this is gold. <laughs> I'm making a. a Okay sign with my thumb and forefinger. Yeah, and suddenly his hand turned to gold. <laughs> mm, which one of us lied and which one of us didn't? <laughs> is, that a, is that a known... Is that from Batman? Nope. Shit. Uh, it's not even a joke. You're confusing me even more with it. So you were saying a real thing and I interrupted you with a bit that made no sense. But you were <laughs> aging out of Batman the Animated Series. Right. Kind of when it, it started. It, it, just, it, just, it just had started and I really liked it, but... Um, uh, I did not uh, uh, watch very much of it when it was originally airing, and I so 
partly because of just how old I was, partly because of just being distracted by other things, I didn't realize until years later what a fucking big deal this show was in, like, the history of animation on television. What you've got is essentially an animated, very successful, top-of-the-line, technically for its time, animated drama series. Yeah. Is basically what Batman the Animated Series was. And it it was and, and you can draw a straight line through the history of superheroes from this show through like Christopher Nolan's Batman's all the way up to things like Jessica Jones, um, where it's like no we're, yeah we're, this is a crazy thing from a goofy medium that was originally invented for children and we're gonna we're gonna take it seriously and we're gonna dig into the things about it that are you know, universal themes of relevance to people of all ages and of interest to people above the age of 12. And they did a fucking awesome job of it that I, like like I said, didn't really appreciate until years later. Yeah, I think it was a big step forward. Like, this show kind of, like, opened the gates a little bit for people to take things more seriously. I think I've had some guests on who, like, will rewatch it and realize that it was kiddier or sillier than they remembered because it was so impactful i mean but at the end of the day it still was a kid's show but i think it was like great this was the first step and like if you watch episodes i don't know if you ever saw like the two-faced two-parter uh but there's Mm. certain episodes are like pretty much just straight up dramas like what you were saying i mean this movie (laughs) in and of itself like has it's there's just a lot of melodrama and like weird like relationship (laughs) yeah 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 well it doesn't hurt that mr freeze might be the only major Batman villain that I can think of who is motivated by something like a genuine human emotion who isn't just either a gang lord who happens to have been deformed in an interesting way mm-hmm. or an utterly shattered person who has no connection with reality at all. We can You can find out what Mr. Freeze's backstory is and immediately understand why he feels he has to be doing what he's doing. Um, in a, in a way that like you can't exactly do with the Joker and which you're really not supposed to. The point of the Joker isn't to be a, a flawed human with recognizable motivations. The point of the Joker is to be the opposite of Batman and the opposite of humanity in every respect. Right. He's that, I mean, he's entropy and he's that horrible tragedy that you just can't explain and it makes you cry at night. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's scary and it's it's a driving force for a plot line, but certain performances and uh, comic book storylines accepted, it's not exactly a character the way you think of a character. No, like, the Joker's like, a force of nature yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Joker is like in human in human form. Any scene from a movie in the last ten years of a whole building falling down. <laughs> you know, you take the essence of that and you turn that into a person, and that's who the Joker is. But Mister Freeze is like, first of all, I had forgotten somehow that Freeze is his real name. Yes, Mr. Victor Freeze spelled fries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Victor Fr- Victor Fries. And yeah, yeah. The, 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 I love that his evil villain name is nope. It's just the polite form of address to say hi to this man. Uh, he's, he's so upset. 
Uh, he is one of the like <laughs> fan favorite characters from this series in particular. Like he was legitimized by Paul Dini in like one of the earlier episodes, mm-hmm. and people fucking love Mister Freeze. He was my favorite villain when I, I was younger when I first came across the series, and I desperately searched for the Mister Freeze action figure because the villains were always short packed when you looked for figures. Uh, they gave like one per box of like whatever twenty four. Really, they're yeah. supposed to do that. They're just supposed to do that with the female characters. Yeah, they're supposed to do that. I thought that was toy policy. I mean, I think it honestly was toy policy and still is. (laughs) What was the Star Wars? We could get get all the way into that. I mean, we can. We can dive in. I have all kinds of thoughts about that. But um, yeah, this version of Mr. Freeze, when you were talking about Batman and Robin, how that's an extra layer of insult to everybody that Batman and Robin took a villain that they'd gone to so much trouble to make a human person on this show and then put him in the movie and it's just the stupidest bullshit imaginable. And and somehow they kept, you know, they kept his backstory. Yeah, like Nora came from the animated series and they lifted it threw it in a garbage can and just <laughs> shook it up and then spit in the shook up garbage yeah. and gave it an Arnold voice. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, what would... If your wife almost dies, and what would that do to a person? Hmm. Let's cast Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you know what? Let's make it about Iceium. Oh. <laughs> or like, didn't he steal like the ice oh, diamond? God. No, and he has to steal a diamond. Uh, this is this is a running fascination of mine with Batman. I, d- I just did, taped uh, Jim Hagerty's Batman, the old TV series podcast. Oh man, last week and uh, said something there. What's the name that of the I've podcast? Said before, uh, it's Bat. Uh, same Bat Time. Same Bat Channel. Is it about the sixties? Yeah, it's an episode by episode. Oh, that's awesome! Podcast about the, the old sixties Batman I show. Gotta listen and to and uh, I'd been rewatching those anyway. Because uh, I got we got the I got the Blu-rays for my wife for Christmas, but also I got them for me for also the holidays. For, I also got them for me because we like the same stuff, which is why we're married. Oh, that's uh, wonderful! <laughs> that's actually one of the only crossovers in the superhero department for me and my girlfriend. Batman uh, is the '60s oh, Batman. That, that, yeah. She loves it. She loves the '60s in it's, general. It's fun. Like. It's fun as hell. Oh God, the color. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you're listening to this and you haven't if, and you have a Blu-ray player and you haven't watched the '60s Batman on it fucking get it because they restored the hell out of it and it looks amazing um and i i've lost track of oh sorry so you were talking on uh, oh, oh yeah oh yeah I was, I was, it, um the kinds of villains batman goes after um over and over and over again for some reason batman has it out for jewel thieves <laughs> fucking stay away from the jewels and Gotham, man. You see a big diamond that's in a glass case with like some spotlights on it. You you keep like five hundred feet minimum. He's keeping extra special watch on those. Yeah, my mom was a diamond, (laughs) and she was shattered one night, (laughs) one fateful night. You know that that's that that's it's always so awkward. Every single Batman movie, they have to flash back to Bruce Wayne (laughs) being walked home by his parents. Who are diamonds? <laughs> the pearl necklace around Martha <laughs> around Wayne, the, the diamond. diamond. <laughs> a diamond wearing a pearl necklace and it shattering, and then the pearls falling down. <laughs> the pieces of the, the, oh, the diamond was actually worth a lot more than the pearls, but I'm sad about both of them. 
Honestly, I was I was trying to think: is there any justification for this in in like our modern, fully thought out version of Batman that we all know and love? And all I can think of is that he's still really mad about that pearl necklace. And so, if anybody fucks with jewelry anywhere in Gotham, he's <laughs> on it. Yeah, it's just a trigger for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like right away. And the, the, even in this, in this, like Batman, the first time Batman shows yeah. up, uh, he is. Uh, chasing down a guy who's robbed your classic, basic mom-and-pop jewelry store. Oh, God. It, <laughs> just the old man on the cane, like, trying to defend himself. It's like, oh, yeah, it was grim. Did it It sounded like a Tress McNeil, I don't think it was, a character. She's like a Simpsons VO. She's a voice Oh, no, actor. that was definitely her. Yeah. Uh, the, the old lady at the jewelry store. Don't, like, don't attack him. Well, ab- absolutely. It's, she has her, such yeah. a specific cadence that it's, and I love, she's so good in well, everything. I mean, I, we've, because because of the Simpsons, we know her voice like the voice of a member of our own family. She's on Rick point, and Morty so. every now and then yeah. now, which is well, she's on everything. That's the way of voice acting. People are people are on. But she's everything. like so. She's like the person you want to bring in. Like, when is she going to be like the star of like you know? I, she's so fucking good. Yeah. Speaking of comedy voice actors, uh, I, I texted you this earlier, but I only realized this recently. So the voice of Batgirl in this animated movie is different than the earlier episodes of the cartoon okay. and different than the later episodes and uh she it's actually kind of a sad story because uh shortly after this she killed herself but she is also the voice the original voice of sheila Broslavsky and oh, God, all of the right. female characters in south park Kyle's for mom, the first yeah. few including the movie where she is every i think almost every female character She's incredible. So funny. And then she also... I think she does a good job as Batgirl, too. She's fine. Yeah. 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 And, uh, Bat- Batgirl is not a uh, super demanding vocal performance in a lot of ways. She has to be kind of flirty and then do some action yelling. Yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's good. She had some good yes. heart with her dad. She- <laughs> yeah. That was... Oh, God. Can I just talk about the... The, because of the comics, because of because of the Killing Joke, now every time I see any movie, TV show, anything with Barbara Gordon in it, I am tensed the entire time, waiting for something horrible to happen to her. When's the door gonna open and she's gonna get, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, shot. Near, near the end of this, she's trying to escape from this burning oil rig, and she's like acrobating off of things, and she takes a header and just falls like thirty feet, lands on her face, and I was like, oh god. <laughs> Is it, it takes time? a very dark turn. Is it like, okay, oh, and then she like gets up and she's fine, but I was like, oof, I don't think I can handle that right now. This is some, this is some heavy shit for this, this particular film. Um, so, yeah, I was glad that didn't happen to her. You were glad she didn't get oracled? Yeah, not, don't oracle her in this one. I think, that, I think they may have made uh, one of these straight-to-video things out of the killing joke. I itself. think it's coming out. Or it, it, they haven't it's yet. It's one of the it's next on, ones, on its yeah. Way. yeah. Uh, I, you know what? I have very little interest in those adaptations. And not because they're not well-made, uh, but I kind of am... I just prefer new stories. Like, we, I've yeah. already read the graphic novel and I understand mm-hmm. because I think it's you know they're super popular and it's like banking on a, a tried and true property for comic fans so it's like great let's make Killing Joke let's make whatever Death and Return of Superman was basically the first one they adapted but I, I really want more of this kind of stuff or like did you see the Gods and Monsters movie 
No. Uh, not the movie Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen and... Uh... <laughs> oh, where Ian McKellen played Batman? Yeah, And yeah, Brendan Fraser play... played Superman? Yes, you you know what I'm talking about. I, I know. I saw that movie in a dr- glorious dream that I had. Very different than what any other Batman incarnation. No, there was uh, Alan Burnett, one of the, you know, the story editor and kind of one of the guys who shaped all of this show, along with Bruce Timm, who co-created it. Uh, they released a movie where it was like an Elseworlds kind of story where like... Batman is literally a vampire. Uh, he's, you know, Kirk Langstrom. Like, it's all, like, kind of crazy versions of them. But That's I was like, fun. great, That's I fun. like this because I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, um, the the animated, I've watched a few of those, the, those recent adaptations of things like, like they did The Dark Knight Returns. Right. They had the fucking balls to do a movie version of the dark knight returns and a couple and uh um all-star superman and a couple of other ones. oh god i love all-star superman uh, all-star superman that is a that is a glorious book that is that is my favorite piece of yeah late, i was late happy period, to see late period grant morrison yeah late period grant morrison usually kind of annoys me but all-star superman was great but the problem with the movies is the problem with like the first first one first two harry potter movies is that like well here it is here here it, it's here, a retelling here it all is in the order that it happened and it's you there's there's no surprises the only surprise is what do they have to cut for time yeah that's the only thing that that i'm wondering when i sit down to watch one of those movies is like oh how did they have to tr- weirdly truncate this to because of it, the budget <laughs> bring it in. yeah they, they and they all they bring them all in like under an hour and 20 minutes almost every time and it's like I understand it's yeah it's all budgetary and everything but that's that's not enough time to that's enough time to give me a flavor of what these stories are like but it just makes me want to go read the comics yeah and, which I guess is the point yeah I, I guess I would love for them to at least do something where it's like every other one of them is an adaptation and in between they have a new original thing yeah yeah it's just so hard to do with characters that have been around for so long can you imagine can you imagine sitting down to read a comic book story it's like Let's do something new with Superman. Yeah, either somebody's, either you're Ugh. kind of gonna fuck it up, or people will think you fucked it up, or <laughs> yeah. it's gonna be the same as everything else. Uh, so you got You have to be really good these days to write a good yeah, comic in any, a mainstream universe. Yeah, it's it's and especially when they keep changing shit. I I don't I don't follow comics anymore. I didn't follow them for very long when I did follow them because. They just it, it's the same problem I have with TV shows that have been on too long. Um, it uh, and and it well not like a like a sitcom or something, but any TV show where there's like an ongoing story, and like arcs to the seasons, and after a while, none of the plot twists feel like they mean anything because you just know it's just being churned along, so we can drag this out and mm-hmm. get people to watch another season or buy another twelve issues of this comic book. Um, all I like. You know, they can introduce the most dramatic changes they want, but we all know it's all going to be right. We don't um, trust it to be impactful. Yeah, 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 yeah. You you can't take it seriously when say Bruce Wayne dies or Superman dies. When you can or... shake the universe up like an etch a sketch every time. Um, every time they do that. Yeah, which I you know like it's it's kind of I don't know what you're supposed to do. Like I I, I don't know if I would have a solution for them. I don't I don't think I don't think there is one. I th- I think. Uh, I, I think there are people who love following comic books precisely because of all that stuff, precisely because of just watching the 
watching the turnovers happen. And some good does come out of it. I feel like you get like a good writer-artist combo and like they're in the middle of like, they're like, okay, here are the constraints of the universe right now. Write a weird animal man <laughs> uh, <laughs> series. And they're like, great. Yeah. I'm going to take this C-lister and turn them into like, you know, the best comic that you're reading right now. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it, yeah. The the only disheartening thing is when they when they get slapped onto something like Batman, and they're like, "All right, uh, or yeah, um, Grant Morrison, write us a year of Batman," and he does, and it's fucking great. And then they're like, "Thank you," and they hand it off to somebody else, and they may or may not give a shit about any of the ideas or characters or storylines that were introduced right. during the tenure of the writer that you enjoyed. And that kind of thing started happening so much in comics that I just sort of tuned out. So my understanding of superheroes at this point is much more of the kind of general, like the outlines of the myth. I could tell you a lot about the origins and motivations and super major life events of a bunch of different superheroes and supervillains, but I could not, if you held a gun to my head, tell you um, an actual comic book story that they had happen to them specifically. Unless it's one of the ones that like everybody knows, you know, like Dark Knight Returns or The Death of Superman or uh, I think Craven the Hunter in Spider-Man, things like just just big deal shit. And I, I I'm much more into the the general the mythos than I am the individual stories most of the time because most of the time they're not the individual stories are not as memorable as the these titanic general mythic characters that they've that they've so successfully put together. Well, that's what I love about this show. I think it does like tap into the mythos of them uh, because they are our, you know like in the future it'll be like these are our Greek gods. <laughs> yeah, I'm not you know in the first person to ever say that. Of course, uh, it's talked about a lot, but I feel like this show is like cool. What's the idea of this character, and how do we tell really great stories so anybody could jump in? Like yeah. you probably yeah, having not seen most of the episodes, we're like cool. I get it. Batman is acting like Batman. <laughs> Mister Freeze <laughs> is the good version of him, and he's yeah. acting like him. And we have some new characters, and you know there are polar bears. <laughs> oh well, that brings me back to continuity. I want to know if you know if you know this. Oh, I do um, probably. <laughs> probably is this a sequel to something that happened on the animated show? Yes. So let me give you a, okay. a brief backstory. There were two episodes with Mister Freeze before okay. this in all of the you know I think eighty something episodes beforehand. Wow. Uh, so this was the that's, last. That's all. That's all he got. There were eighty up until then? only two episodes, uh, and then he got. Uh, one episode, two episodes after this one in another Batman episode and then the Batman Beyond kind of closure. But uh, so beforehand, Heart of Ice was the first one. Uh, and that was, you know, the backstory of Mr. Freeze. Scientist tried to cure his wife, Nora, backfired. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of would do anything to steal technology and revive her and get revenge on the company that kind of fucked him over and all of, all of which technology was diamond related for some reason. <laughs> for some reason. I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, and then Deep Freeze, which was uh, the, the sequel to that one. A lot of people don't like that one as much. I love it. Uh, it's got, it's a fun, like, I actually think you'd really like it. You like Disney, right? Like Walt Disney kind In, of stuff? Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so it's uh, if you haven't seen this one, basically some guy kidnaps Mr. Freeze from his prison cell because he's kind of like, you never see him team up with the other villains. He's kind of got this whole separate vibe. 
Uh, and yeah. he kidnaps him because he's like a Walt Disney type tycoon that wants to create an Epcot type society <laughs> uh, for, and then he wants to basically destroy, called Oceana, destroy the rest of the world, and then kind of promote his ideals. And he wants Freeze to help him live forever. Uh, which is okay. kind of a fun use of Mr. Freeze. That is, and like, a, that is a bizarre story. It's so weird, and that's why <laughs> I love it. But it's so much like basically evil Walt Disney kidnaps Mr. Freeze, and he gets his own Mr. Freeze suit. I, I am a giant sucker for any story that has like a fictionalized, crazy version of Walt Disney in it. It's I, awesome. I'm a big fan of that. And like a cultish, like he's like a cult leader, and so like all these people have moved to Oceana. It's kind of like a Bioshocky vibe, too. Um, oh, oh yeah, totally. Pre, you know, rapture falling to pieces. So uh, how does that lead into this? So that ends with, basically he, you know, baits him. He's like, I have Nora. And so, you know, I can help, you know, maybe help you cure her. I forget exactly what the details are, but it ends with everything crumbling. And uh, Mr. Freeze, we see him like floating away in an iceberg with Nora. You know, she's not stabilized or anything. So when this opens, we find he's living in the Arctic and uh, he's kind of living the life, you know? He's, he's He can withstand the cold. We know that because he's in boxers or a swimsuit in the Arctic. He's made a couple polar bear friends. He's doing some nude spearfishing, and he's uh, found a little Eskimo boy somewhere. Kunak? Not super thoroughly explained. No, definitely there for from. the heart <laughs> Yeah, the definitely story. a dog to pet so uh, that we can understand. This, that was something I structurally... Uh, this... This movie is so weird because the classic, if we're gonna if we're gonna graph out the structure of of this story and these characters, yeah. the protagonist of this movie, the person who is pulled semi unwillingly into an adventure, which he has to battle an evil greater than himself and ultimately uh, achieve a difficult goal and maybe learn a little bit something about himself in the process. That character is Mr. Freeze. Yeah, which is so movie. fucking cool. <laughs> it's so it's so different. He starts the movie in this classic kind of action movie, like you don't find him, he finds you. Just badass living in the wilderness somewhere, and then adventure is thrust upon him, and he has he has to go. Um, he has to go back out into the world and um, fuck things up in a way that he was he was not really interested in doing at the beginning of the story and yeah I, I thought that and Batman is basically there is, is kind of along for the ride yeah Batman isn't the really there until the end he's you know like kind of snooping around and shaking people up in the middle of the night yeah. literally like just like wow <laughs> uh, but it is Mr. Freeze what I think what they what's cool about it is that they uh, he is your tragic hero mm-hmm. um, he's he's Pretty ruthless. Now, did, you, did you say this? I don't know if I can't remember if I knew this already. That the Nora, the Nora element of, of Mr. Freeze's character was invented by this show. Yes, Paul Dini wrote the first episode. Before this, Mr. Freeze wow. was pretty much just a goofy ice gun villain. Yeah, uh, like you know, in the old '60s series where you know it was like puns and jewel thievery. Jewel thievery. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he that that was pretty much it, and they gave him a little bit of pathos. See, that's so, that's yeah, that's so impressive to me that they 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 engaged 
with the deep mythos of these characters when they put this show together. But when that mythos was lacking, they fucking invented their own and it was always great. Yeah. It's really impressive. It, anything that was bad, they made better. And anything that was good, I feel like they generally like upheld. Yeah, that's that's another way this show was so influential about just, just how, how you should do a genre adaptation of something that on the surface may look kind of juvenile and silly. But there's always a way to like claw into the heart of it and find something relatable and true uh, and thank 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 god for it because otherwise we would just be getting like uh, joel schumacher movies oh man just, just more of those over and over again which we don't need to talk about how bad it was but it was bad batman and robin if you have not seen batman and robin it's 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 not so bad it's good it's so bad it's unbelievable like you literally are watching it and you cannot believe that this was made by humans who were paying attention to anything they did at all i would say the first 10 minutes are fun bad like so bad that it's good and then it gets really boring and it's very because batman forever i think is more watchable like i think it's like so bad it's good like fun like it's like the right amount of campy and batman and robin's just like it's it's dog shit. <laughs> I'm on rec- I'm on record uh, uh, on this subject a number of places, and I'll say it again here. I think Batman Forever is fucking great in in its crazy, campy, dumb way, and it it's dr- good at it, what it does. Yeah, yeah. It's and, not and this. <laughs> it drives me up the wall that people mix Batman Forever up with <laughs> Batman and Robin. They are two different movies. They are. They have two different casts. They have two different Batmans. Stop mixing them up. It's not that hard. Oh God, makes it. Uh, it, it 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 makes me nuts. Like Batman Forever. Is that the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Alicia Silverstone? No, no, it's not. Shut up. Get out, Mom. Can't. <laughs> mom. Mom. Uh, that was a yeah. I just, was just kicking doing, your mom out. That was just me doing my impression of kicking my mom out into the snow. I'm assuming, Ooh, like Mr. Freeze. Assuming there was snow wherever we were. Well, but. we are talking about Sub Zero, baby. <laughs> yeah, no, we got to talk about Batman, Robin, and Batman Forever some more. Uh, yeah, that 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 was like such a weird thing to come after the Tim Burton movies. Like, like that—that's something that the Batman animated series did was basically keep Tim Burton's Batman and the idea of Batman as a serious character in general alive through some of the darkest days of the brand yes you know because the movies were they really screwed the pooch and this was still alive and well yeah um which was nice this was honestly the saving grace of that that movie like as a kid like i was uh i was very excited to see batman and robin and so disappointed because i loved mr freeze (laughs) from the animated series so when this came out i was like oh good uh, and I, I remember, you know, this actually held up better than I remembered. I thought it was, I remember being like, feeling mediocre about it. Um, it feels like just like an extended episode, more so that's than a why film. I, that's why I asked if it was like made to be chopped up into episodes, because it re- it really doesn't, yeah, it doesn't seem like a movie. Yeah, it's it's pretty much like, par for the course, a solid Batman story. Uh, Mr. Freeze is a fun villain. I, uh, they kind of do this fun bit in the beginning where they, you know, whatever, they're at that, uh, I don't know what it is, a ball, some sort of fancy rich person oh, event. Oh, yeah, the usual, the usual thing that Bruce Wayne has to Right, where Gordon gets to talk to Bruce Wayne, and they're like, yeah. where's Barbara? And they keep cutting away and seeing, you know, her as Batgirl kicking ass, 
which I was like, oh, that's a fun device. And then I was just re-watching uh, another episode from the series Pretty Poison. It's the Poison Ivy intro. And I was like, they do the same thing with Batman. Harvey Dent is like, I wonder why Bat Bruce is late. And they just cut away and it's like him beating the shit out of people. And I was like, well, you know what? It's a fun device and it works. No, yeah, it's a good gag. I like it. Uh, I kind of wish there was more stuff like that in this film. The last 20 <laughs> minutes is basically just an extended fight scene. Yeah, which, which I'm fine with. is well choreographed and real fun. But it's... I, I kind of was like, okay, let's like space it out, put some of those cool fights in between. Mm-hmm. I don't know, actually, Polar Bear Fight is fun. Polar Bear Fight is fun. Good God, seeing a, Robin versus Polar Bear? You know, you know that's, that's the backstory that I want from this. That's, that's the untold, untold story. How did Mr. Freeze become the master of the two most intensely loyal and faithful Polar Bears that have ever lived? Yes. How did he, he just bonded with them so hard... All I can think is that they think he's their baby, and they protect him at every turn <laughs> from anyone who gets in between them. Well, he is hairless, so <laughs> maybe hairless. they think he's a big baby. He's hairless and white. Yeah. And so, of course, they're like, we should take care of him. We speak English. We this, is how, this is how bears talk. Yes, like Buffalo Bill. What, what is the... <laughs> Put the fucking freeze gun in the basket. <laughs> it puts the... <laughs> it puts the freon in its veins or else it dies of overheating or whatever the fuck happens to Mr. Freeze. Oh, I was really I was realizing I I cannot remember exactly um powers wise where Mr. Freeze is at. Does he get super strength from his He does. He gets some he gets okay. a boost. It is like a, you know, kind of, uh, just kind of jack, enhanced jacked suit. Up a little bit. Yeah, jacked okay. up suit and he's got that ice gun. Um that's pretty much it. I was very excited when I played the um I, I assume you've played this video game. If you haven't, why not? When I played Arkham City. I have played Arkham City. I have not played the most recent. Did you get all the way through Arkham City? One. Did you see everything? All the major story beats and everything? Yeah. Yeah. That Like, Mr. Freeze and the fight you have with Mr. Freeze is one of my favorite parts of that game. And Voiced they, by Maurice LaMarche, yeah, our yeah, last it was. guest. That was also exciting as fuck. And I realized early earlier in this episode when I was doing a brief impression of Mr. Freeze, I was doing Maurice LaMarche's Mr. Freeze. I was not doing the impression Michael of this, this guy. Who, who, who is unfortunately that. passed, but he was fucking awesome. Who else did he do? Did he work on this show in other capacities? Uh, no, I think he pretty much... I mean, maybe other voices here and there in the episodes he was in. I guess when they originally brought him in... They asked him to keep toning it down. They're like, "No, more muted. Just like, just, just yeah. give us like the most toned down read Here's you can." Line readings like this. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that sort of thing. Nora. 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 Oh, isn't this fun for you guys? Har- you can only hear the worst noises coming from the two of you us. You guys aren't enjoying our Harvey Firestein Mr. Freeze contest? Hey, Nora. Hey, Nora. Oh, I'm oh. going to find a cure for you. That's a you good no Harvey idea. Firestein. Thank you. Practice <laughs> very hard. Um, what so, oh, yeah, Batman Arkham City. When I played Ar- well, just when I played Arkham City, I was super excited to see that they had basically retained this costume design and kind of CGI'd it up a little bit. Yes. It's, it's basically the, the animated series Mr. Freeze. This costume. is one of my favorite designs. Actually, Mike Mignola, creator of Hellboy, designed. I don't know if he did anything else for the show, but he was brought in to design Mr. Freeze for the first episode and. Boy, does it look like a Mignola design. I did not know that, and now that you say it, it's so blindingly obvious yeah. that it is. You a mean design. a guy, a head in a jar? 
with a bunch of cool, uh, you know, neo futuristic and, and things. Di- yeah. yeah, it's it's but very stri- stripped down and kind of Art Deco-y looking. Yes. That's and and two circular red eyes. That's a Mignola design. You're uh, kidding me? That, yeah, I, I know. Surprising, surely, right? Surely you jest. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, his actually, there's some art online of his. I think because he's drawn Mister Freeze a couple times for some other comics, and it just looks so cool. I love everything he does. I I would I. I know he's attached to his own original characters and everything, but has he ever had just like a Batman storyline? Yes, he actually has. Of his own? I mean, I think before he really dove into his own stuff, you know, when he did more work for hire. But I think he's done a couple. Um, one is, I think, I think you did Gotham by Gaslight, right? Was that him? That, I, can't, I can't remember. Uh, I, I think at the very least he drew it. And it, that was like the Victorian era Batman tale. But then there's some. Um, Did he do one of those black and white stories? Did he have I think maybe in there? there is a. That's, I think a book just came out, which is uh, there, which basically DC published his story that he did for Batman. Uh, there's some other one with Mister Freeze in it. That's cool. And then he did. Uh, I think he's done a couple, maybe two or three, but uh, maybe there's more. But uh, yeah, the the big one was I think. Gotham by Gaslight. Is that the name of it? It's something like no, that. No, that, that is that is Gotham by Gaslight. That yeah. is it. I don't think I've read that one, but that's definitely that's definitely the name. Uh, it's great. I, there actually was a, a Batman Hellboy crossover. Really? Yes, Batman Hellboy and Starman. <laughs> um, and the Joker also oh, appears. Remember, in that. remember Starman? Uh, that was barely. A, that no, was a whole, that was a thing for a little while. And this was the time when Starman wore the leather jacket, had the goggles, and that weird rod. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was that era of Starman. Uh, but I believe the Joker references the show Frasier <laughs> in the Mike Mignola penned cross. Oh no, he didn't write it. I think he only drew it. But either way, okay. Frasier comes up in a Batman comic from the '90s. Look it up. Ugh. Fuck, I it's one of my that. favorite panels of all time. <laughs> that's that's goofy as shit. God, I wish I could. Uh, I, I'll bring it up remember, on my phone. Remember when in Arkham City when the Joker makes I think multiple jokes about the Lost finale? No, that is something that definitely happens. In well, Ar- Paul in Arkham Dini City. wrote I think the first two Batman Arkham games, and he is one of the you know big writers on the animated series. He also wrote on Lost, so maybe there's a connection there. That makes sense. That- that makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's so much. I love those games partly because there is so much of the animated series. It feels like it. They did an amazing job of somehow in a, in a completely different medium with a completely different standard of design and everything. Um, really got that feel across in a wonderful way. Like that's you know, um, not not to not to bring the mood down, but um, if you're listening to this, David Bowie died this week, mm-hmm. and we've been, I've been having conversations with people all week long about what their entry point to David Bowie was, because there's been so goddamn many different David Bowies, and he's done so many different things in so many different media, and I, it, Batman's kind of the same way. You got so many different Batmans. You got your like sort of gritty '80s Batman, and you got your silly '60s Batman. And your 30s Batman who was like literally shooting people with a gun. Yeah. People forget (laughs) that it was like he was fighting people named Dr. Death and he was shooting them with guns. He was just, yeah. Batman, when he started out, was just straight up a murderer. The fundamental thing that we think about Batman is not what was fundamental (laughs) about him in the beginning. They worked worked that out much later. Um, Thank God they did. But it does make for some extremely humorous early Batman comics where they indicate that someone has been shot with a bullet by drawing a little dotted line that goes Mm -hmm. through their body. 
and a little perfectly circular hole. Yeah, like bullets uh, are want to do. Dick Tracy style. Yeah, yeah. No blood or anything. Just scores of dead bodies. Ouch, death becomes me. (laughs) When I think of holes in people, I think of the death becomes her uh, cover. Uh, Why can't they have a Batman crossover? They would be great. Death becomes her Batman crossover. (laughs) Just Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn versus Batman. How can we Uh, make that happen? Well, there's still this is the beginning. Okay. Fans, uh, hashtag Han Streep Batman. <laughs> hashtag Death Bat comes her. Uh, oh my God, that's that, better. That, death Bat comes. Her. Is it okay? Yeah, uh, I did find because I, I I had to Instagram the uh, quote from the Mignola comic. Uh, I, he did not write it, but uh, it's Gordon who talks about Frazier. Okay. But it's in relation to the Joker. Batman says, "You remember that bar last July." And Gordon says, of course, they had a hockey match on TV and the Joker wanted to watch Frasier, so he killed everyone in the place. <laughs> Which is so funny and so of the time. It's, it's like a funny, weird, terrifying thing, but also so funny that the Joker wanted to watch Frasier. Just like, that's how you know the Joker is a terrible comedian. <laughs> that that's his, like, can't miss TV. Don't tell Jacob Reed he's a big fan of, he's a big Frasier head. Or Kevin Smith, right? Talking salad or whatever that that podcast. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't think Fraser is a bad show. No, you but can still I, voice your opinion about Fraser. I don't. Thank you. I, I yeah, I, I can definitely picture the Joker being super into it. Yeah, I have no affinity for Fraser. All I'm saying is, Jake, <laughs> Jacob, if you're out there listening to this, you might be a murderer. <laughs> you might be a killing machine. Just. Tamp down those tendencies in yourself. Uh, you Jacob, by the way, happen. is uh, a friend of ours, a comedian, and also co-host of Before You Were Funny, the other podcast I do. Plug. Plug. Uh, <laughs> world's most obnoxious podcast host <laughs> talks about his other podcast on his own podcast. So let's talk more Sub-Zero. Let's dive back into it. Uh, so what happens in this film, right? They uh, Well, Mr. Freeze is starting, starts out the movie the spearfishing in the nude in the middle of the Arctic and seems fairly happy. And then a submarine crashes into his cave and almost kills him and injures Nora badly enough that she's going to need some kind of an organ transplant uh-huh. that is never specified. A blood transfusion or organ transplant? What, I think what they said is she needs an organ transplant and that's why they're looking for a compatible blood donor. Right, and it just happens to be, down the line, Barbara Gordon, who right. is compatible. But he finds some old uh, science scientist buddy fellow. of his who needs a lot of money, who's a real shithead. Yeah, they, they, put a lot of, they put a lot of time and energy into fi- figuring out the motivation for that guy. Yeah, was, that was actually interesting. Was he like... had blue eyes that really popped. <laughs> that's the only thing I remember about that dude. Yeah. I just watched the movie... Today. I forget I his name. I couldn't tell you his name or anything about him except that he was panicked about some stocks thing. Thing, yeah. He, oh, his, yeah. He was he was being shaken down for money. Yeah. But uh, and then Batman shook him down for information. As, as only Batman can do. Uh, the guy here's a little here's a little tidbit. Uh, the guy who voiced that you know shitty uh, scientist was uh, also the voice of Scarface and the Ventriloquist on this show. Oh, nice. Uh, pretty good job. He's a good voice actor. That's that's that, I love George that. I Zunza. Love that, I love that character so much. Yeah. Part of the, part of the problem with my 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 fandom of this show being kind of like not completist or anything is that my favorite episodes are the most obvious favorite episodes. <laughs> peek peek behind the curtain of this podcast. Justin asked me which episode I would like to do, and I think I suggested like four different things that Justin told me four other people had already requested. Well, each you're not of those the only things. one. Everybody is like. 
uh, Heart of Ice almost got him. Almost got him was the first one I came to. Uh, Did someone Clayface Feet of Clay? Clayface. That, oh yeah, that was that was one I was I was thinking of when we were talking about like the most dramatic episodes we'd ever saw. Clayface episodes are straight up body horror. Great in a way that you don't. Yeah, they're very Cronenberg. Yeah, and they pull out the the stops on the animation in a way that this show usually did not. And any show that had to be animated in Korea by people who did not maybe entirely agree on what the show was going to be looking like. Yeah, the end but, of that first Clayface 2 Parker where he's like transforming into all of his roles yeah. and stuff is like one of the most beautiful pieces Yikes. of animation on that it's show. Really, it's yeah, And horrifying as fuck. Really awesome job with Clayface, but um, yeah. Oh, oh man. So, so we're going back to Sub-Zero. I wrote it, I wanted to discuss with you and just uh, express to the listener my fascination, ongoing fascination with early 90s late 80s attempts to integrate cgi into 2d animation it is one of those things that i understand why they do it and they've gotten a lot better at it over the years but it is still fucking awkward as hell whenever i see it i can't not look at it and take it apart well it looks head. bad uh it's a bummer because <laughs> well, especially in here this, in here because this, is... this was the beginning of it uh which yeah. sucks because the rest of the animation looks really good like the 2d is good the 2d is fine the 2d is all is as good as it ever is but then the, the, there's early on where we're just drift the camera is drifting between giant cgi icebergs and suddenly a 2d polar bear swims right. into the frame and the animation and on the polar like, bear looks really good but they don't look like they're moving through water no it looks naturally it, it, it looks like it's being like like held up like like a card is being held up with an animated yeah. polar bear on it between these three D things, and it just looks so weird. I was very glad when they mostly got away from that after that sequence was over. Well, the even, word, yeah, even that so that submarine is is CGI, and it's just it just looks weird. It, and it, it happens in Mask of the Phantasm. The whole opening credits are like a CG Gotham that look way less cool than the actual the painted, painted painted background Gotham looks a million times better every time. Just, well, the crazy just, thing is. That this was more money at the time like it was cool and more expensive at that point and now it's done because it's way cheaper what cgi yeah so like at the time <laughs> yeah. it was like way it was like a cool thing and it, look how elaborate we can make this and, and the worst thing is like now that's like the thing that's resorted to because i believe it, it's way more cost efficient I, th- I think it i think it definitely is depending on the kind of there's there's some shit Bob's Burgers in, integrates it really well. Yeah, Bob's Burgers. Whenever they're driving in a car, the car is CGI. Um, it's things, close to things, Iron Giant. Like Iron like Giant, that. the giant yeah. itself yeah. was CG, and they meticulously, I think, like cell shaded it, or I don't know what yeah, it's uh, called. Yeah, yeah either the, I think sometimes they do that in an automated fashion, and sometimes they draw in cells over the CGI. But they were rotoscoping things. to some extent, and like it looks beautiful. Yeah, and it, it's obviously they had way more of a budget, but it's one of those things where it's like, man, that's the way to do the CG integrated into two D. Is like, yeah, and this this was so the opposite of that. Like every CGI object sticks out like a sore thumb every time they do anything with them, and it's to me, totally distracting. Well, and it kind of happens down the line, like when they did the Justice League show. In the first season, they have a lot of CG fire, and it's like, this is... This oh, looks bad. The rest of the show looks good. What's it going on? Can't cost that much more to get. I think the it does. Animation. Well, to just fire. Draw some fire. I fire. Honestly, is one of the hard. I think fire, smoke, and explosions are one of the more intricate things. 
yeah. because it has to like you know to make it look really good because but. yeah and it's it's not like you can slap in a drawing from elsewhere in the run of the show you've got it oh yeah. they've done that though okay. <laughs> you'll see like okay. it'll like in some episodes like if they had a shorter smaller budget they'll use an explosion from another episode and, and kind of like it'll it won't look terrible but it'll be like suddenly a close-up of it instead of like so they'll be a little off yeah, yeah. That's, that's weird. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it make it makes sense from a from a budgetary standpoint. I've never been in charge of the budget of an animated show, so I don't know how easy it is to go. Yeah. Please just fucking find us the money for some hand drawn fire. But I'm sure it, it's difficult. Yeah, <laughs> luckily they points. barely used it after the opening credits. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, of, the, of Mask of the Phantasm uh, or, or this or this. There oh, was yeah. like that flying that you know Batman. Ice yeah. Oh, that was frozen so. And it shatters. Oh, deep nineties there. Uh, deep nineties deep on those graphics. Holy shit! But the rest of it luckily looked good. Yeah. And, well, and when the CGI Batwing shows up, that actually works pretty well. Yeah, that actually did. It's basically this big black shape, and the 3D is just used to make it easier to move around, kind of, instead of yeah, whatever the hell they thought they were doing with those icebergs. What I loved Ooh. actually, I don't know if it was CG or just like it looked very pretty. So maybe it was just not CG, and they did a good job with atmosphere. But there's the shot, like whenever they were in the operating room, and there was like that kind of like weird fog, and everything kind of had a glow to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was like, oh, this looks really pretty. Like the use of color in the this movie was great. Uh, I mean, like everything having that like bluish purple hue. Yeah, I like color. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was oh, when I was talking about all the different Batmans that there are. My favorite, my favorite Batman because of basically because of the age that I am is like Tim Burton's Batman uh-huh. and so that's what I love so much about this is that Tim Burton's Batman version of Batman ended up really lasting a lot longer than Tim Burton lasted on the property oh yeah because you, you went to this show and then that it influenced like Nolan's Batman at least a little bit and uh, definitely an influence on the Arkham games which are like some of the best video game, probably the best video game versions of Batman out there, and and yeah, that that strategy of art direction and the use of of darkness and muted colors and everything, um, I'm just I'm just really glad that that hung on, and we only got we only got two movies of crazy ass anime Batman <laughs> Japanese futurism flailing Joel Schumacher nonsense. Uh, uh, which includes Batman voice actor uh, John Glover, the voice of the Riddler in this series, is in Batman and Robin. In the first scene, where Poison Ivy, I think, like he's her assistant, oh, yeah. like with the crazy oh, hair. Yeah, he's all like, and he's a uh, good actor too. He's amazing. And you know that they he's were like, great. dial it up, John. And he's like, really? Because I was part of Gremlins too, and it was not this dialed up. <laughs> I was part of the new batch. Can I tell you? I saw John Glover play the Music Man. Live on stage. Harold Hill? It's a touring production of the music. Oh. He played Harold Hill and he was great. Never seen never seen Lex Luthor's father tap dance. Right. He was I in Smallville. He was Lionel was a, Luthor. Yeah, yeah. Also. He was my favorite Riddler. Uh, oh, the, well, actually, I love Frank Gorshin a lot. I'd say they're tied. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I really like I really like Jim Carrey, but I know I'm alone on that. I like Jim okay. Carrey, but I just like him because it was I think that was the peak of Jim Carrey's stardom, and they were like, "You do whatever you want. We're just gonna get out of your way." He man. just does yeah. fa- like '90s bits, uh, mm-hmm. like he's just Jim Carrey. It's kind of like the genie in Aladdin. Like they oh, just it is let abs- Robin Williams do that. Absolutely. That well, they were looking at they were looking at Robin Williams for that part. Oh, really? Did you know that? 
he was he was in talks or 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 fully cast or something, and then they had to go another way with it. But yeah. I mean, Jim Carrey's great, but he's definitely not playing the Riddler. He's playing like Caesar Romero's Joker no, mixed yeah. with Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah, I, I, which was fun. I honestly, I couldn't tell you who the Riddler really is because of that because that's the Jim Carrey Riddler is like my Riddler but it has nothing to do with anything that (laughs) the character acts like or is about in any of the other stories he ends up looking speaking of Bowie looking like a weird David Bowie by the end of that movie he has that glowy suit and like the weird hair he's all kind of Aladdin saned up yes or like uh, Zool (laughs) yeah oh yeah Oh, that's a total Zool suit. It's a Zool ripoff. Made that connection. Slash Aladdin Sane. You know, you know that great character, the Riddler, that space god from another, <laughs> from another dimension who's just come here to be insane at us and oh. maybe play some rock and roll. Now I want to rewatch Batman Forever. I'd always want to rewatch Batman Forever. Let's just do that podcast while we're sitting here. I, I, I was not in grade school when Batman Forever came out. I was old enough to buy and ingest my own psychedelic mushrooms. Ooh, what a fun way to see that movie. It was, uh, it accounts for a lot of, well, probably all of my opinion and emotional connection to Batman Forever. <laughs> I probably would not give a fuck about it if I hadn't been on the best drug you can possibly be on to see a movie when I saw that movie. Um, but because of that, I have no objectivity on it, and I will defend it, <laughs> I will defend it up and down, and uh, like, like I said, certain characters in that movie, I... I associate intimately with that movie, even though people who have read the comics and well, they rip off the animated them. series in that movie. Like the Two Face is like a bad version of this series. Two Face, really? Yes. Oh, God. Like the way that Two Face is defeated in that film is how it's ripped from this cartoon, and it's done so much worse. That's that's ridiculous. Tommy Lee Jones's acting style of Scream. Oh, dude! <laughs> yeah, so much Scream. So I've I've never seen an actor commit so hard to something they clearly thought was awful bullshit. He really hated being a part of that movie. I heard <laughs> it's really not his thing at all. No, I think I think he might have been on the record in an interview. It was like I did this because I have kids. Yeah, I, I think he I was kind of a dick about it. <laughs> yeah, um, Tommy Lee Jones. He's a great uh, great actor. Who knew? Uh, but definitely yeah. okay. not a great Two Face. So even yeah. So even the the the. Yeah, I even have this series to thank for some, at least, of that movie. Oh, watch the Two-Face episode. Yes. It's got so much more pathos. Yeah. It's a two-parter that's great. It's all about Harvey Dent, way more way more Harvey Dent than Batman, again. Yeah. And it's like one of the first episodes. Well, two, Two-Face, is, that's, that's another character who's like a lot more interesting than most of the other ones, and they fucked up everything that was interesting about him when they put him in the movie. Because yep. he's like, no, he's just a maniac. He doesn't, he's not conflicted at all at any point about like whether he's good or bad and what a bummer that they killed him off in the new movies or the the nolan trilogy because they were for sure counting on the joker returning and i was like well maybe they'll bring him back i remember there was a time where there were like theories like well we didn't we we just saw his body but we didn't maybe he's gonna come back that's that's definitely what i thought was gonna happen and And they they, didn't really they really I thought that was a big boo-boo. Yeah, um, they kind of damaged the damaged we, it. We could talk for another hour about my problems with The Dark Knight Rises, yeah. but I'll keep that to Not myself. Not my favorite either. No. Uh, I would rather watch Batman Forever than The Dark Knight Rises any oh, day of the week, oh, and I'm going to get flack for that abso- on the internet. Absolutely. I will defend that decision uh, any day of the week. But hey, Sub-Zero. Uh, I'll always say, but hey, Sub-Zero, to bring it back. Um, <laughs> I, hate, I hate it when you bring it back. I mean, there's not that much more to say. What I do like is that Batgirl kind of got a starring role in this. And uh, 
she is traditionally goofy or a side character in the animated series. Kind of has more agency, which I like. No, I did like her. I, I, I did like it because it's something I haven't seen a lot in movies where there is superhero movies where there is a girl hero or a woman hero or whatever the, the term. <laughs> right. Per female hero. I hate that. That sounds clinical and dumb, right. A superhero who is not a man. <laughs> a superhero of the feminine gender usually does not get a scene as funny or interesting as her fucking with Dick Grayson about whether she's going to go away with yeah. him for the weekend. That was really cool and cute and like kind of a fun little like you know. This, well, look who turned around yeah. on that B story, Paul. You, you J. know. Well, I like okay. I like that scene. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. Scene I don't. Too. I I have never liked Robin. I have never cared about the Robin storyline. I don't think Batman ever needed a sidekick except as someone to have in a scene with him so he would be able to do some dialogue instead of just watching Batman silently investigate things, <laughs> you know. I think that's what Robin's good for. But I'm looking at my phone right now because I did take some notes in oh. here that I want to see if I if there was anything we didn't uh, we didn't cover. Well, I liked I, her I escape attempts. About. I thought like they really exhausted her being a badass, even if she was foiled each time. Uh, the reveal of her being on an oil rig was like a fun, hopeless moment. Yeah, uh, there's nothing more I hopeless like than running and seeing water it's and like, being like, "Well, shit, shit." Every side, yeah, it, it is the traditional. Uh, superhero movie problem of if there's a female character we gotta we gotta stop her dead in her tracks at some point so that she can be rescued later by the man that the story is actually about which was kind of a bummer uh it's not a huge bummer i, th I still think she had agency i still think she like kicked ass in the end but yeah. it was like batman and robin showed up at the end to basically I don't even know if they saved the day. They just kind of beat up on the polar bears. Oh, they did that fun <laughs> thing where they ran to the edge of the ship yeah. and tricked the polar bears into jumping. That's fun. It's like, all that's right, now. And, oh, that, was, that struck me about this movie. This is the rare Batman story where the villain is essentially henchman-free. There's no big crowd of goons who have been inexplicably rounded up from somewhere and handed small uh, little beret hats. No, and, that uh, happens later in the series. They got real henchman heavy in the fourth <laughs> season. No joke. He, Mr. Freeze's next appearance, he shows up with like... It, it becomes a little bit more Adam Westy in a weird way, even though this, the stories are more serious. Uh, he has these like Eskimo-dressed uh, henchwomen, <laughs> which felt very out of character for him. That's really uh, yeah, that's really strange. But it's like one of the weirder stories because it's basically Nora ends up coming back. You know, like she is saved. She is saved at the end of this. Yeah, she is that's saved, and she that's marries strange. the doctor who saved, like who brings her back. Whoops! And so Mister Freeze loses hope in humanity. And so wants to remove joy and like from everybody. Like his his new kind of agenda is that. So he becomes less likable, but that's, also that's... his body deteriorates. So he's a head with spider legs, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> I don't care how, okay. how you feel about the episode. I think that's a cool horror trope. <laughs> well, I think that that's kind of a shame because that do, does do away with what I was talking about, which is the recognizable human motivation of Mr. Freeze. I think and most it, people it do just, not like that episode, yeah. but I, I do like yeah. how he how creepy he looks. It, it makes for a fun reveal. It's fun. Okay, I got, I got some things that I wrote down here. Yeah. Uh, during the opening credits, I just wrote the following. Uh, fuck Bob Kane. That was something I wrote yes. just by itself. I only recently notes. learned that Bob Kane kind of stole Batman. Yeah. It's total... It's Not total, kind of, he did. Yeah, fuck that guy, on the record, because he, he is only the sole credited creator of Batman because of a bunch of legal maneuvering 
uh, to get a hold of a character that he did not do shit for. That was and Bill Finger. The, yeah, it was Bill Finger. Bill Finger and some other some other people. Bill Finger is primarily responsible for the things people really love about Batman, like the the, the very early like the physical design of the character and everything. Right. You can look up you can look up Bob Kane's original design for Batman, and it'll make you sad. It'll what does it look real like? Real sad. Um, it's it's just very generic. It doesn't have any of the elements like the cape with the bat sort of bat wing yeah. shape is not there. The ha- the cowl with the horns is not there. It's just a stick figure. It's just, it's just a nude man. A stick figure with a big it's, dollar signs for eyes. <laughs> and and like holding a bat. The, the bat symbol is just an actual bat stapled to his chest. It's yeah, it's pretty universally really uh, known in the comics <laughs> community that he sucked, which I did not realize. Yeah, I, well, be, but because any You've seen his name as a kid all the time. Yeah, well, and, and because of the legal bullshit that he went through, um, any time Batman's creators have to be credited in something, it's always him. Yeah, you see his so, name. So, no, if you don't... If you don't care enough about comics to go and like ask around and read up a bunch of like more deep digging in kinds of things, you would never find out anything different. But yeah, fuck Bob Kane. I wrote that down. Okay, great. Um, Point number two. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if I only have eyes for you is the first and only pop song existing pop song that has been, ever been used in an episode of this show. Yeah, I think usually, it is. Usually it's it's custom written music. And is I've that, never heard them throw in a, a song like it's it's like the Platters or something. I wonder if they had like the Warner Archive, like it's owned by Warner Brothers Music or something. But also Am I Blue plays. Um, is that in here? Yes, well? it is, okay, which is like kind of like a fan favorite Batman thing because later in the Justice League show... Uh, they have B- Batman has to sing Am I Blue, uh, which is like it's like more of a comedic episode. Uh, but it's like, you know, once, they, you know, like there's magic involved. It was like a Wonder Woman. Get, here's the story. Wonder Woman gets turned into a pig by Cersei. Of course. Uh, and so Batman has to like break the spell. Uh, but it's wonderful because it is this version of Batman who fucking hates having to sing it. <laughs> but then he does and it is Kevin Conroy singing Am I Blue and it is awesome uh, it was actually just really he released the full track online I think at kevinconroy.com oh man but that it was interesting that that was in this movie and I didn't realize that it was previously in Batman so that's 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 trippy anyway I love that point number three Uh, where where did Mr. Freeze get just a raw lump of gold was that ever explained he did say that he found it like a strain in the Arctic okay so that was explained wherever the hell he was Mm -hmm. Um, and we already covered me wondering if he had super strength and oh this is just funny something I thought was funny that I don't know if I was supposed to find funny but I did near the end when Freeze is trapped under some rubble and he's surrounded by fire and he is panickingly shooting his gun at fire <laughs> and screaming. He's, he's, he's just he's shooting at flames like they are zombies surrounding him and he's trying to drive Freeze them saving the day? <laughs> he was, I mean, that was what a hero, it was his hero moment. It was. But, well, Ice at fire. Well, like the, the hero moment, he fixes the elevator, right? He like, right. unjacks the elevator so they can get back up. Yeah, there. and he's like, leave yeah. me. And, yeah, and they give they give him like they give him like that the happy ending where his wife is going to be okay. I know and like, the like, name. like that 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 scene at, at the very very end they cut over to some like radio station radio listening outpost or something with some characters in it that we've never seen before. Right? Like, what is this about? And then they're watching a report about uh, Nora Freeze being revived, and you see the shadow of Mister Freeze skulking up 
outside from the the frozen darkness and i thought that it was going to be him killing them all and taking their snow cat <laughs> or something and barging off to gotham city to kill even more people but instead he just watches the report that his wife is all right a tear rolls down his face and he walks back off into the arctic with his polar bear friends which and is a sweet it, ending. i thought it was very sweet and i wasn't expecting it at all yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what i love about it it was i mean you kind of brought it up but this is frieza's story yeah. More than anybody else's. I mean, Definitely. I guess it's Barbara Gordon's secondarily. Eh, but it kinda. really is. Freeze is the one who has the arc. Freeze, Freeze is the one that we want to see what happens to him because he's the one who had a problem. <laughs> like a recognizable, sort of relatable. He's got a loved one who's very ill and he's yeah. got to do something about it really quick. And yeah, and it works It works really well on level, that level. So well, cool. Any Any... Parting thoughts? Closing thoughts. Um, just another reminder that Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are two different movies, and one of them is fun, if not good, and the other one is a crime. <laughs> so that's the main difference between them. One of them is a criminal act against humanity, and the other one is a, f- a pretty fun superhero movie. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's all I really came here to get across. Yeah, no, I think yeah, yeah you brought you did bring all your propaganda, <laughs> your Batman Forever propaganda. I handed you all the flyers and everything. Thank and you, uh, and I yeah. will put all four hundred thousand of them in a storage facility. It's like the money in Breaking Bad. Perfect. Uh, cool. Thanks for coming on the podcast, thank, man. Thank you for having me. Well, that was fun. Let's move on to today's guest. Randy Rogel. Randy Rogel has one of the most fascinating entries into the world of cartoons. A man with military training, a theatrical background, and no prior work in TV had led him straight to Batman as a first job. He isn't just the writer of Sub-Zero, though. He also wrote some of the best episodes of the series, Two-Face, Riddler's Reform, and Robin's Reckoning, which he won an Emmy for. He's also the guy behind the Animaniacs film Wacko's Wish and your favorite songs from that show, which he also won awards for. He's the writer for many other Warner and Disney cartoons and currently one of the creative forces behind 1001 Nights. Uh, It was great to meet up with him at his home and talk Batman on a rare rainy day in L.A., He's absolutely one of the most interesting guests I've had on the show so far. It's a long, meaty interview, and I think you guys are going to really like it. So enough of me, more of Randy. Oh, I think I'm going to keep that one in. You're welcome. Sitting down with Randy Rogel. Thank you very much. We're in your amazing home. I see... Cool awards, which I imagine are associated with this series as well, well as they're, others. Well, they're one of those is for the Batman series, top one. I wrote um, that was in the days when we had a primetime Emmys. Actually, it was kind of cool. It was a primetime Emmy for an episode I wrote. It was the origin of Robin. Robin's Robin's Reckoning, Reckoning right? And the other two are for Animaniacs, and then the other ones are, you know, other show. I, I run a show called A Thousand One Nights, and it, it, it the Canadian Emmys basically called Leos and. We have several for best writing and best show and all that. So, well, let's let's dig in. Okay. Uh, so we were about to dive into you know where you're from off mic, and it's like wait, let's start this. Uh, you're originally from San Diego. I grew up and I was born and raised in San Diego. And you moved out here when? Well, <clears throat> when I graduated from high school, um, I went off to college. But I really I, I grew up in San Diego. Believe it or not, doing a lot of theater. Um, 
there were a bunch of pretty cool theaters. The Old Globe Theater was a big one there, another one called Circle Arts, not there anymore. So I had a strong <clears throat> exposure to good writing and good theater, good music and all that. Uh, there was, there was a, a theater there where they brought in professionals, you know, from New York and they would look, yeah, national tours and I, you know, they'd hire others locally and I got, I got to do that. So I worked with some really talented people and I think that gave me my, my first interest in the arts. And then I, from there, when I graduated though, I left all of that behind me and I went to West Point, which That's is... such a shift. It is a shift. And for me, it was like, you know, I was sort of a lower middle class man. We didn't have a lot of money and it was a chance to get, you know, you get a free education, but it's not really free because they own five years of your life afterwards. Right. And in, my, in my case, it was six years because I did my graduate work. So I ended up, <clears throat> I, I went to West Point. That's a full university for four years. You know, you graduate with an engineering degree. And then I spent six years in the military as an officer. But I never really wanted to make the military my career. Although it's funny, some of my very closest friends in the world today, even though I live in Hollywood, are guys I graduated from West Point with. And I have quite, you know, it, it, it's an astounding class, the class of 76, because, you know, we all looked at each other as a bunch of bozos, you know, and, and yet we have more generals than any class that's ever graduated from West Point. Really? And, yeah, and, and you know, David Petraeus was two years ahead of us, but he used to haze us. But um, Stan McChrystal, who ran the war in Afghanistan, Ray Odierno, who ran the war in Iraq and, and was the commander of the troops that caught Saddam Hussein. And I was just at Ray's retirement ceremony a couple months ago in Washington, D.C. And a whole slew of other, it turns out, um, you know, they're, they're a remarkable group. Um, of course, I didn't go down that. I left after six years, but I, you know, these are my friends I stay in touch with. But it's kind of funny when we, in fact, my reunion's coming up. It's funny to get back there and see guys I knew mm -hmm. when we were just 18 and 19 and, you know, starting out, now running the world, you know. But <clears throat> for me, uh, I got out, I went into corporate life. I was relocated to Seattle by, uh, I was working for Procter & Gamble at the time, I remember, I just came, but... And then I got recruited away to a company called Digital, and, and I, um, I began doing lots and lots of travel in my job. But being back in the United, because I lived in Europe most of that time. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I- Where in Europe? In Italy. I spent a little time, I was in the Berlin Brigade too. I remember most of my time was in Italy. Yeah. Northern Italy. And so when I got back, I was there not quite four years. and. Uh, so when I got, I got back, I'd finished my math, I did my graduate work in international relations, political science, landed in Seattle, and they had theater there. So I thought, God, I haven't done much theater in a long time, you know, like it's been 10 years, so I really did a big show. So I, I, I went and auditioned, I broke in, and I started working nonstop. And it became a conflict between my job and doing theater. And I thought, you know, I really want to work in film and television is what I want to do. So I came down here, but I didn't have any any credentials. What attracted you to film and television coming from, I don't know, I guess such a, a wildly different background? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I always thought, I mean, I, I'd done a lot of acting, I thought I was a pretty good actor, but I always thought I was a pretty good writer too. You know, I uh -huh. wrote, I wrote and what's funny is I wrote a lot of songs too. I think that went back to the days in San Diego when I did all those musicals. And you ended up winning, winning an Emmy for a song for Animaniacs, right? Yeah, I, I won an Emmy and a Peabody. Man. For, yeah, and they cited the Peabody. These are really clever songs, which um, which was lovely. 
and now I now I have a real career in Hollywood writing songs as well as you know running a show, but <clears throat> which is remarkable to me and it, it makes me smile to think that happened. But your question was what made me be interested in film and television. Um, I guess because I always liked television and, 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 and movies. Stage was fun, but you know, there's so much more that you can do. You know, I can take you in an instant anywhere. I can do cuts. You can't do cuts in theater. Mm -hmm. You're never going to get rich doing regional theater either. But I just had an affinity, but I had no experience in it. When I came down here, I was writing scripts, but, which were making it to the studios and the producers, but I didn't have any experience. And people were thinking, well, no. Even agents were saying, well, no. You know, I'm gonna have to sell you really hard, and I've got people who already have credentials. And it was Batman was the thing that broke open for me. Uh, a very good friend of mine who I'd known back in San Diego, a fellow named Kelly Ward, who was a great actor, oh, yeah, great he's dancer, very big in the animation industry. Very big. Well, you know, he wasn't first in the animation industry. His father was an amazing director and dancer and all that and he had a younger brother Kirby who I've become very I've performed many times with Kirby we've done the show Sing the Rain many times together he's Donald O'Connor and I'm or excuse me he's Gene Kelly and I'm Donald O'Connor but I ran I, when I came back I ran into Don and he told me about Kelly Kelly had done Grease mm -hmm. he was a big part in that movie he'd done The Big Red One with Mark Hamill and Lee Marvin he'd had a real career and then <clears throat> I think it, things had shifted for him in, as an actor, he was still getting work, but then he got into um, writing for mm -hmm. animation. And so he's the one who told me about Batman. So I went over to Warner Brothers, I got the Bible, I read it, and I read one of the scripts and all that. So that's when I began writing some spec scripts to try to break in. And Alan Burnett, who is a very close friend now, but he was the boss, and he is, Alan really, if you want to know who's responsible for Batman's success, I would put it with Alan, with Bruce Timm, with Eric Radomski. They're the three guys who really had the vision on it. I think Eric and, and uh, Bruce had the first, you know, idea for it, and they made this sizzle roll, which was really cool. Right. What well, kind of became the intro? Yeah, it was really dark, and you know, everyone went, "Wow, that's neat." And then Alan was brought over from Hanna Barbera, where he'd been, and he's the guy, you know. These kind of series, when they're created, there's many different ways they can go. There was an original team working on the show, and they were making it more kiddie-like. And Alan's the guy who, who made it, you know, script-wise, and hired the people and, and, and guided the scripts to what it really became. Kind of short films, you know, that were dark. And That's what they feel like. They feel like, you know, perfectly encapsulated movies. Yeah, and, and Alan really taught me. You know, anyway, he... Um, I've told this story before about how I broke in, but I, I got <clears throat> a script to, I went in to deliver um, a, a spec script to, because um, after I read it, I thought, well, I could write this. And I wrote a spec script and I brought, nobody was there at lunch, I put it on the producer's desk. And uh, so she'd see it when she came back from lunch. Her name was Barbara Simon. And so when I called the next day, they, usually they don't take your call. They said, well, hold for Barbara Simon. I went, oh, really? Hmm. So, so she got on the phone. She goes, Randy. I thought, oh, she knows my name. And she said, I really loved your script. So she said, I gave it to Alan Burnett. He's going to be the executive producer of the show. And, uh, and, she, and he liked it. And he wants to meet you. And so I met him. But he had already staffed. He says, you know, I've already got my staff in place. So I just wanted to know who you were and keep you. I said, good. I want you to know who I am. 
<clears throat> and then I went, I, I went off, I wrote another one, and I had an idea, and I gave it. And, and what I was gave, your first spec script, by my, the way? Uh, my first Just curious, spec, like, what the idea I was. I have it. It was a terrific one. Oh, look at me complimenting myself. But it, it was it was called The Ape Man, and it was a, a scientist who was working and, and was able, you know, he lost control, turned, and he was a, quite a formidable opponent to Batman, but it had a lot of heart to it. But I do remember the opening of it was really, really cool. And they never made that. Usually your spec script would never get made. Mm -hmm. That would be very rare because they already have a vision for the show. But I will tell you, the opening of Sub-Zero was the opening of the Ape Man. Really? Yeah. Oh, excuse me. The opening of, no, I take, the opening of it is they're under the ice wall. You know, but I'm saying the first time you meet Batman, when you go to Gotham City. Yeah. And that guy breaks the window and then Batman comes down. Yeah. But I even had it darker, you know. Um, you know, we, we had to lighten it up. But um, I wrote a second script, which was another really wonderful little script. That ne that never got made either. What was but that one about? I'm trying to think. That was of of a woman. What was the name of that? I have it somewhere where she was had been jilted lover. Oh, of, was it of Harvey Dent? And she she was busy killing people. And she, it was, and she had plants. So it was a little bit like poison ivy. That might have been too close to poison okay. ivy. Yeah, but I remember that one was um, was a, was a pretty cool little script. But but what happened was Alan read it and he said, you know, because he had two scripts for me. Now I said, all right, look, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a chance. <laughs> he said, I wrote an outline for Two Face, the first episode of Two Face. So you write the script. So I wrote it from his outline, and it was a pretty cool outline, and. That came out well, and then I asked him if he had an idea because it was Two Face. It was a two-parter, and uh, so I said, "Would you have an idea for the second part? You know, second episode?" And he goes, "No, I don't." I said, "Well, I do." He said, "What is it?" And I told him. He said, "I really hate that." I said, "Well, <laughs> how, I said, what about this?" I had he no, point blank told you he hated. Oh, I'm very honest, and he's very sweet too. Right? He, <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't say anything mean, but he just goes, "Man, I don't like that. I hate that." I said, "Well, how about this?" I had another idea, and he goes, "Oh, that I like." So then he he gave me a break. He went to the Warner Brothers, and he hired me on stamp. But he just hired me week to week, so he could get rid of me anytime they wanted. Mm -hmm. But then I became like a gang writer, you know, for all you know, for all, they have like four story editors, and I was just writing like crazy. And it was a great experience because I'd not written for television. I would write like for stage, and it was a different medium. And Alan was very—he'd come and he'd go, "You need more action, right here. You need a scene with some action here." I go, "Oh, okay." You know, he would—he, you know, because he knew structure, and he's done that for a lot of people. You talk talked to you know guys like Bob Goodman, tremendous writer, who's on Elementary now, who mm -hmm. you know, who who wrote on Warehouse. 17 or 13? Yeah, he, 13. He, uh, Bob was Alan's secretary and would write, write. Alan just has cultivated so many people. Bit of a mentor. Mentor. Paul Dini, one of the best writers I've ever met. And Paul's terrific at Batman. Yeah. You know, even Alan, I think, shepherded him along in, in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't want to speak for Paul, but my guess is Paul would certainly speak very highly of Alan. Oh, he definitely does. Yeah. 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 And... Um, yeah, and, and Paul's really a special Batman writer to me. I mean, he just, you know, Paul's just a, a really good writer to me. Um, I've had the, you know, I'm, when I'm talking about Batman, um, I, he, you know, he wrote Tiny Toons. In fact, Paul and I just shared an office together at Disney. Really? The last couple of months, we, we were writing on the 7D together. But oh, cool. I had to leave because I'm running the third season of another show that I helped create. But um, 
all of that is to say that then I, I began writing on Batman and I got, you know, I sort of learned my chops. How it worked. You know, because in television, you, you don't have a lot of time to tell your story, especially if it's a half hour or in a cartoon, you know, you're like 22 minutes. You know, whereas a play, you've got two hours or a movie, two hours, you know. And the other thing about I learned in the structure of television is the arc of your characters can't be that much. See, in a movie, when you had a movie or certainly a play too, um, the, the where your character starts and where they end, the bigger the arc, the more interesting it is. You know, you start off with some character who, uh, you know, take any movie you want. You know, who, uh, what I just saw Star Wars. You know, so when the first one, you see Luke Skywalker as this young kid. By the end of it, he's this responsible Jedi. You know, he's grown right. and all that. And television, you can't do that because we want to invite Homer Simpson into our living rooms every week. Right, you don't want to complete the arc, you want to... The yeah, okay. in other words, if, if, if I have Homer, you know, or any character change, by the end of that, I have him go back to being who he was because mm -hmm. we see him, and again, we want him to be the... That's the character we come to know and love and he, you know, he learns his lesson, but you cannot, you know, change your lead character in television. So, I, you know, that's something I learned a great deal um, writing for that. But then also... It, you know, it being dark and having those fantastic villains, what I liked about Batman as opposed to other superheroes, because I grew up reading comic books. Yeah, I was wondering, like, how, what was your background in comics? And, and yeah, I loved comic books as a little kid, like everybody. I read Superman. I read. Sure. In fact, when I heard about Batman, I thought, oh, yeah, I remember Batman. I, you know, I read that as a kid. And what I liked about Batman as opposed to other, you know, your Green Lanterns, or certainly your Superman, is Batman, you can kill him. And he's also human, you know, and he's a little crazy. And he's haunted by the death of his parents, which is a great set. That's why he is such an iconic character. You know, generally, if you want to have a great cartoon character, kill his parents. You know, yeah, super, it seems super, to be the, the model. Yeah, or take him, away, <laughs> take him away from his parents. By the way, you know, did you, you remember Skyfall? Yeah. The James Bond movie? Al and I both saw that. Did you notice the second act of Skyfall is Batman? <laughs> it's, I mean, James Bond's parents were murdered before. I mean, it was just the, the mythos of Batman. But... So with Batman, it was very interesting that you try to keep him in the real world. And I know we have these fantastic villains, but they all are grounded in, an, in a, a rational explanation within the natural world. Like, you know, when we have um, Clayface, he was a, an expert at makeup and, he, you know, he had this, or, you know, he, he was subject to another guy who, you know, who, who, who used this makeup to be able to try, and he got infused with it. So it allowed, in other words, it had some kind of basis in the real world. You know, even the Joker, the Riddler, the Penguin, they're real people. That's why I had a guy submit a script to me one time where Batman was dealing with vampires. And I said, well, you know, this takes Batman to a whole new place. Because, what, you know, now if I can have uh, vampires, I can have dragons and all that. You know, I can have magical beasts and characters. And then it doesn't really become Batman anymore. What makes Batman work is you got a real guy who's a little crazy, mm -hmm. you know, who goes out. And that's what I think resonates with people. Well, that's what I love about this series in particular is kind of what you were talking about. Uh, but like all the villains, you know, as Clayface is probably one of the crazier, right. you know, uh, villains in terms of like powers. And but, he's so, he's so you know, formidable because of yeah, that. Yeah. But he's like the most, one of the most emotionally resonant characters. Mm -hmm. Like I think most people I've talked to who, you know, grew up watching the show, that's one of the characters. Like Clayface and Two-Face and Mr. Freeze are like, you nailed it. You nailed absolutely nailed it because well, let's go. We were talking about Sub Zero. Um, 
you know, I had been, I wrote Riddler, I wrote Penguin, I wrote Robin's Reckoning, and um, I wrote the Two-Face, or the origin of Two-Face, those kinds of characters. And Harvey Dent is definitely a sympathetic character. Oh, yeah. Because he is the way he is, not because of his own fault, and not because of greed, and you know, he was just an honest guy who got, you know, caught up in events, and certainly Freeze is that way. But what happened was, I was writing on that. And then after a year and a half, I went. I wanted to work for Spiel, you know, Steven Spielberg was doing Tiny Toons. Mm -hmm. He was doing, you know, they were creating Animaniacs. So I said, oh, I should write for that show. And they said, no, you write dark stuff and, you know, Animaniacs is comedy. So I said, no, I write, you know, comedy is me. So I wrote that funny song with all the countries and he liked that. And that, so I ended up going to work on Animaniacs. But at some point, um, I, I began writing some Batmans again. Alan came and he says, hey, we need a couple more scripts from behind. I thought, oh, it'd be fun to write Batman. But because of that, it sort of put me back into that a little bit. And Boyd came to me, Boyd Kirkland. Mm -hmm. And they, I guess part of his deal or whatever, they'd offered him, he could do a Batman movie. But, you know, for video. And he said, hey, you want to write it? And I thought, because he, I, I think he had directed a couple of my episodes, or we, you know, we knew of each other working yeah. on the show. <clears throat> I thought, oh, okay. So we got together. I was more the writer, Boyd was more the producer. And he was also, you know, brilliant. Director and an artist, and you know, uh, you know, he's passed away now. He was, I'm really sorry to say, R really terrific guy. You know, really hardworking, good work ethic. But so we sat down. He had had an idea of using Bane, and so I sat with him. I thought, well, Bane would be good, but what we should do is make him the Terminator. So in other words, he is such a formidable opponent that Batman, you can't kill him, and he's coming for you, and so that's really scary. Is and, and, and so every time Batman engages him, he gets hurt more and more and more until by the, the end of it, you know, Batman's in a really bad way and Bane can't be hurt, you know. So it was really exciting. At the same time, I, I, I introduced a subplot with Robin and Batgirl who were dating in their mm -hmm. alter egos but did not know that they were each other, you know. So when they would meet as Robin and Batgirl, he didn't like her. You know, he thought she was an amateur, you know. So it, it, it had some humor to it. So we wrote this really terrific little script, um, and and um, uh, it might have been in yeah it was a script. I mean because I know I had a really detailed outline form, and it probably and we did it to script. How long does that take you? Just out of curiosity. Uh, well, for that script because that was a longer one. You yeah, know, it was an hour or like six, six, 75 minutes. Uh huh. Um, probably to come up with the story and really be you know cracking the story is the really important. Yeah. Part, you know. And we probably did that over the course of a week and a half to two weeks. You know, I'd come in and off, we'd sit there, and then I'd go home, and he'd go home and think about it. Then, to take the script, basically what I did was write the script. I think he'd write a scene, or I'd write a scene. But, I, you know, I would write the script, he would take his notes and that, is, it, it, for, for that. Because, and he, you know, he, was, he deferred to me because I was more the writer. Um, but boy, boy, he had some great ideas. You know, he could really look at it and go, yeah, I, you know, this doesn't, I don't really buy this. You know, so he, he was a great, you know, collaborator on that. And um, and it does say written by both of us, produced by both of us, but he did more of the producing and he did all the directing. Um, but we that script probably after that, I probably took a month, you know. So that's a go, significant chunk of time for something I imagine that morphed <laughs> quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, I mean, normally for writers, if we're doing a half hour, I would give them a, a week we can have to do the outline, mm -hmm. and then two weeks. You know, if it's if it's for 
the script two weeks to three weeks for a script and then and then notes and all that will come back in until you polish it. And I had to go to the network too. Had to go to the studio, the network, they give notes. <laughs> but we we came up with the Bane story. And then we got called over to Warner Brothers. And the heads of the, you know, basically that direct video entertainment section. Um because it was a companion piece to the next big Batman movie. Because Batman was Warner Brothers' biggest investment every two years, they told me. Yeah, at that point, it was also like yeah, the, the Tim height Burton, of Batmania. Right, at that Tim, time. Tim Burton's movies had really done well. So we got called over and they said, okay, listen, they just signed Arnold Schwarzenegger to do the Batman movie, and he's going to play Mr. Freeze. So we want your story to be about Mr. Freeze to be the villain. I said, but you know, we already wrote, we wrote it for Bane. Bane's the villain in the story we have, the script we have. <laughs> I remember this exact said, well, can't you just use your Universal's, you know, word search and replace on your word processor, <laughs> where it says Bane, just put in Mr. Freeze. <laughs> I just was like, what? Are you kidding me? So I just, I said, look, I'll do, we'll just write another script. We'll just do another script, do a different story. So in that, you know, situation, like, do you get paid to write a new script, or is it just kind of assumed, like, no, well... St- I was on staff. You're on staff, so whatever yeah, they So they own me. Do. They own me staff. Okay. Oh, no, no, if you were, if, you know, if you were a freelancer, I guess they would, um, you know, they'd have to pay you again. That makes sense. But um, in this case, I was on staff. In fact, that's probably why they went to us, so they wouldn't have to, you know, they right. were already paying for us, and um, just was an additional assignment. But anyway, so I took him back and I began looking at Mr. Freeze. And the first Freeze Paul Dini had wrote called um, Heart of Ice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Freeze is definitely a sympathetic character. See, Bane is not. No. But he's like a super soldier um, that's chemically altered and pumped up on drugs and all this. So I said to him, I said, you know, he's a sympathetic character because he's not who he was. he's He's not who he is because of you know, greed or some evil intent. All he was trying to do was save his wife. And the evil guy ended up hurting her, you know, because he was a cryogenic expert and all that. And the last one, you know, I took it off the last episode they had. I thought, you know, where would he be now? And so we put him in the, in the Arctic. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we opened up and we see the Arctic with the, you know, just the rugged environment of the icebergs and the cold, you know, you know, frozen seas and all that. And you see the, you know, the fish and the polar bears. All and then you see some guy swimming in shorts, you know, in all of that. And it's, of course, it's him. And uh, that's, he'd, be to- he'd be perfectly fine there. And then, of course, when he goes back to his cave, there is his wife. Who's, he's got her frozen there because that's the only way it'll keep her from, you know, until he can find a cure. So we both thought, oh, that's a cool idea. So that's where we went. And we made him a very sympathetic character in that sense, but, you know, he's also got to be a villain. Right. And so the idea was a submarine, you know, in the polar ice accidentally comes up and knocks and breaks her container open, and now he's got to do something. You know, that's the inciting event for the story. And then we go to Gotham City, and, I mean, if you've seen the movie, I won't rehash it to you, but that, that, that was the original idea, and then Batman gets caught up. But I was able to bring that Barbara... Yeah, I was going to say. I was able to transfer that story over. Well, it was like she was central to the plot. I mean, more so, I imagine, maybe. Yeah, and I, I remember liking it because it really fleshed out Robin's character 
as more than just a sidekick to Batman, we really got to know who he was and on his own. You know, the moxie that he had to go after her, you know, and, and also her moxie, too. And I remember we got, when, when the Batman movie came out, um, with, what was that movie called? Batman Forever? Batman and Robin? Batman and Robin. That one, yeah, the Schwarzenegger one was Batman and Robin. Robin. It, it, it really got blasted. It was horrible. And th- this, <laughs> this was before it came out, the, the, you know, just sort of the, the buzz and the previews were not good. And Warren Brothers was really nervous about that. So we got called back over to those guys and they said, we're going to delay your movie. We're not going to release your movie Ugh. for another six months to a year. And I said, why not? And they said, well, the other, mo- they're worried about it and they don't want this movie to compete, you know, like, like it would get bad reviews, yours would get good reviews. I said, oh, but nobody's going to confuse a cartoon with it. And he just got in my face. He said, listen, you know, Warner Brothers is, this is a big investment of theirs and, you know, we don't, we don't want any shit, <laughs> you know. So I was like, okay. So um, they delayed the release of ours. But then when ours came out, it did come out after Batman and Robin. It was released kind of quietly without a lot of big fanfare. And because um, there was talk at first of releasing, the, giving a limited release in the theaters because it was getting pretty good buzz. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Bob Daly came, who was the head of Warner Brothers at the time, and he was pretty cool about it. He said, well, you know, we have to really take a, a gut check. If we have to release it in theaters, it costs us a lot of money to do that. And are we going to make it back? And it's only a directed video. You know, we didn't make that thing on a big movie budget. We made it on a television budget. Sure. You know, a little bit more than a television budget. So the animation, we, we, we incorporated some CGI, but it was very expensive at that time. And Which is so funny because now CG is the cheaper thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks, I think, like, you know, much worse than the, the 2D. I mean, the, I think the animation, the 2D animation in Sub-Zero is great. It's like some of the best of the series. Well, it was fun because it was new at the time, and, and, and the, you know, but the problem for us, and we looked at it, we kind of just you know bit our tongues, is that it looks like two different worlds. I said, right. I said, boy, can we flatten it out? He goes, yeah, but I, I, you know, I've only got so many resources to do that. Like if you watch the Iron Giant, which had a bigger right. budget, the, the giant is 3D. They do some sort of like cell shading on the giant? Yeah, well, they or? just flatten it out. Gotcha. It, it's, it's a CG, and that was Brad Bird before he went to Pixar. Uh, directed that, and but you know they they had a guy. His whole job was to take that CG and then flatten it into the world of 2D. Yeah, you know, we could do this best we could on the budget we had, but it was fun. We we chose like what would be the CG we would use. There's a scene where Robin's chasing on a motorcycle, and that mm-hmm. was really a cool little CG moment. I get yeah. There is. I mean, I feel like that works better than a lot of the other CG that I see today, though. <laughs> like there well, we had one with the bat wings shows. coming down and, and, yeah. and flying over the water and all that. We got to do a little CG there, but you know, we just had to pick and choose where we could do it because of the money. But then the movie came out, and Siskel and Ebert at that time had that show on television where mm-hmm. they would review movies, and they reviewed it. I thought, wow, they're reviewing a movie that just came out in video. It didn't come out in the movie theaters, and they both were really complimentary and saying now we've seen this movie and this this little dink you know direct video this is a live action movie it's a cartoon and it's a live action movie and the live action movie was a cartoon you that's know, so truly they, what it feels so, so like they, they went on and on about that and that year Alan and I and Paul Dini and all of us we went to Sundance uh-huh. uh, film festival so we all had a house rented a house together and ran into um Ebert, Roger Ebert, at one of the films. And so I was talking to him, I said, yeah, I was, you know, 
one of the writers and producers on Sub-Zero and all that. I thought it was really a cool, thank you for that. And then he went off, he says, man, animation is so different than, you know, it's not, a, it's not for children anymore. Animation is really finding its way, you know. And I, I was able to thank him before he died, you know, it, it was, and he was a funny guy. He was a really cool guy, but it was nice to be able to thank him for, you know. That's so cool. It's such a rare opportunity to like yeah. actually see him in person after the fact around the time when it happened. And he said, you know, well, that's nice of you to thank me, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't give you a good review as a favor. I, I really <laughs> liked the film and all that. I thought, well, thanks. You know, it was great to have that. Well, and also as like, you know, uh, somebody who was avidly watching the series when it came out, you know, Freeze was one of the characters that you looked forward to who, who meant a lot. So when they were going to do a live action version of him, I was like, yes, great. And you went to the theater and Boy, was it a disappointment. Like, it was... Uh, I remember, like, you know, friends, we were just like, this is horrible. What did they do to this character? And they even, like, pulled elements from the animated series. That whole, you know, Nora was kind of part of the Batman and Robin film, but it was like a weird, you know, it was just a goofy parade of bad. Well, Batman, I mean, Boyd and I were a little concerned, too. We saw, you know, Batman works in the night. He ne- you know, I would never have Batman run up on the steps of City Hall in his tights, standing there. Terror- See, what makes him work yeah. is he goes out at night to scare the crap out of criminals. And so he dresses up like a bat because criminals are cowardly and superstitious lot. Mm-hmm. So the idea is if you see Batman, if you actually get to see him, you have about a half, one and a half seconds before you're out cold, you know, no, it frightens the crap out. You turn around, there's this thing standing, you bam, you know. He doesn't let you see him very much. He swoops down behind you and wham, takes you out. Or if he did take you, I, I remember the first time, you know, he took a guy, it was in the dark, and the other side, and he told the guy, you're gonna go get a job, and I'm gonna be checking up on you. <laughs> you know, that, that. and, and uh, you know, when, when they did the Batman and Robin, you know, he's driving around in a neon lit car, you know, drawing attention to himself. Batman doesn't draw attention to himself. No, it felt like it was harkening back to like an Adam Westy version of Batman. Right, the 60s with, version, right. Which I enjoy more than Batman and Robin. Yeah, if like, you're going to go campy, go, camp- go words, campy. But- that's the point of it, you know. But the, the, I like, the, you know, that would have been a big mistake in this war. You know, no, this world. was fantastic. This was like redemption for right. that film. It felt like, you know, as a viewer, I was like, oh, thank God. We get another good Mr. Freeze story. <laughs> the one that we Well, wanted. I'm glad you like, and we really made it touching at the end. You know, we wanted to kind of break your heart. And at the end, you see he's he's hearing that his wife's okay, but he's condemned to that life there. He get, and he goes walking off of his polar bears into the into the vast dark yeah. of the Arctic. And uh, I thought, now this is this is really a cool place. Now, I did write a sequel to it, which we thought we were going to do. But then all of that sort of ended at Warner Brothers, so we never got, and I must have that somewhere. A I sequel have, to Sub-Zero, like a feature or an episode? A feature. A feature, a subject, because we were going to do a sequel to it. Oh man, what was the sequel? And, and it was it was really a wonderful thing because at this point, in the middle of it, um, was it that I think I went back to the did I go back to the Bane story? Can not remember? Because I remember there's this just this funny scene where Batgirl and Robin are running into each other mm-hmm. as each other and don't and getting in each other's way. Like in fact I saw a little bit of it. Remember the Incredibles when yeah. he's he's getting and in the opening and she he goes, Hey, I had him. No, I had him. You did remember that there are yeah. yeah. and and then at one point he's talking things are getting really serious between Barbara and Dick. And so 
Bruce is the one who says, are you going to tell her that you're wrong? You know, don't you think she has a right to know that? Because, you know, she may not want to have anything, to, you know, you can go out and get yourself killed. In other words, you, he really puts the heat on him. And so he goes, you know, maybe you're right. And so at one point when she comes to visit, he says, I have something to show you. Because in an earlier scene I'd had where he called, you know, as Robin, he said, you're a rank amateur. Mm -hmm. you know, something, he'd said something like that to her. And so he takes Barbara and he takes her down into the Batcave. And she's standing there stunned. And he's kind of like, you know, with this smirk in his mm -hmm. face. Basically the subtext is, yeah, you know, I'm Robin. You know, okay, I'm cool. And she turns around and she slugs him right in the mouth. He goes down he goes, and she goes, what do you mean I'm a rank amateur? It's and, great. And, and then, then he goes, what? she goes, oh, he goes, wait a minute, you're, you're, and that's when they find out who each other is. And right the crux of that, boom, the, 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 you know, the Bane is on the attack and they have to sort of, you know, forget about that and get to the business of, and so now they're working together, only they know who each other is. And, and, and there was this whole issue of, you know, can we make a family out of this? One of us might get killed and, you know, the, so it was a terrific list, but we never ended up being able to do it. And then by that time I went on to other, other uh, series and other shows. Now, I, remind me, did you work on the new Batman Adventures end mm -hmm. of it? Or it was like pretty no, much... No, I had left, at, when I, I went back to Animaniacs, and you know, that was the day of the Pinky the Brain, Hysteria. So you just kind of popped and, over to do this feature. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and, then, and then from there, I left and I went to Disney. And then I was at Disney, you know, working on a bunch of stuff. And then I went to, and I wrote tons of songs for, you know, Peter Pan, for... Cinderella, um, for I did a lot for House of Mouse, which is a series at that time. I did a lot of the director video, you know, writing songs for those. And then I was producing on a couple of the Winnie, Winnie the Poohs, you know, they had, that's in the time when they had that huge director video division. Yeah. Um, and then I went off to do, um, what did I do? I did a lot of theater, and then I was doing, I, I just done a bunch of shows. So I did a show called Danger Rangers, and now I'm doing A Thousand One Nights, which is my, you know, a show I helped create with a studio called Big Bad Boo. And it's, you know, it's all over the world now, and in about 85 countries. And so now we're doing our third season. We have several new series coming up. In the meantime, I've worked, like I worked on Rio 2 with John Powell, um, co-wrote a song, or did the lyrics for Kristen Chenoweth for Rio 2 which was a really lovely experience. So you're just working constantly. <laughs> you try to. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, I, it sounds I like also like a, such a variety of things, like even back, you know, in, in those like Animaniacs Batman days, mm -hmm. switching back and forth, like how did you reconcile like your writer brain or is it just like, no, this is who I am and it's easy for me to swap? No, it's like, who, it's who you are. And if you're a writer, you learn the show. Mm -hmm. What I do find um, about writers and animators too, Justin, because you're an actor, is a lot of them are like actors. Um, and Boyd taught me this with with, with the guys who, who are animators or storyboard artists. It's like you have certain actors who are great Shakespearean actors, and then you have actors who are great action actors, and then you have guys who are great comedy actors. You mm -hmm. know, and they don't necessarily cross over. Because I remember we were talking one time about using we had in in, in Sub Zero we had a lot of action sequences, but then we had one where. I had this kind of romantic scene between Barbara and Dick, and he gave it to another guy. He says, no, no, he has to, and I go, why? He goes, no, this guy really knows how to do the facial expressions, how to do the emotional stuff, and this guy really knows how to stage a battle scene, and they're not, he says, it's like, and I thought, oh, that's it. So I find writers the same way. 
you know, you try to be as good a writer as you can, but some write, like if you took a guy who writes for The Simpsons, mm-hmm. who's just like a brilliant writer for The Simpsons, that doesn't mean he's going to be a great writer for CSI. You know, people have, and, and vice versa, people have sort of their sensibilities. And some can be great comedy writers, and they can be great comedy writers on a certain show. And some are, you know, just great, you know, action writers or mystery writers or whatever, so... Well, it seems like you you gravitated towards at least with the Batman stories, like more of those human, like kind of like darker. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of them were dark, but I feel like some of them much darker than others. And like even the spec scripts you were talking about mm-hmm. didn't seem like your average Batman story. Uh, they they didn't feel like you were like going for the big villains. It felt like you were going for like the seedy kind of underbelly of that world. Yeah, story is everything, and you you what you don't want to do is let. Uh, I'll explain this. You don't want plot to drive your story. You get, people will say, well, what? that's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not really. If you read Stephen King's book on, on, on writing, he actually addresses this too. Is One time I was writing a Batman story or episode, and I wanted Batman to end up on a roller coaster with the Joker slugging it out. I thought, wouldn't that be cool? Yes, it's a big action scene. They're fighting on a roller yeah. coaster. And I found myself just concocting things to get it there. You know, I would have to just sort of force things to make the story want to go in that direction. And it wasn't real, it wasn't honest, it was just all of this, you know, plotting and concocting. And and I stopped and I just said, I just let the story go where it wanted to go. What made it the best story? And where, where the audience would go right down the spine of that story in just a beautiful way. And I didn't end up on the roller coaster. I ended up somewhere else just as good. And it was a real lesson to me that if you find yourself as a writer forcing your characters to do something that, that's out of context or, or forcing a, a beat of a story to go to some place where someone would go, well, wait a minute, if they just did this, then they wouldn't need to do that. Or if they just would have said that, you know, then you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, really plot that story so it's honest. And those are the kinds of things I would do for Batman. But I, I would love, I also love staging, you know, the real battle scenes and we have a great one on that oil derrick in Sub-Zero oh, and I really write every beat of those out when I do so and Boyd even said to me he says yeah Randy this is really good he said because you know when he used to do G.I. Joe when he was in his younger days he says and writers would say and then the G.I. Joe comes in and they win the battle they take the scene they take the day he goes what does that mean I need to know beat by beat by beat of who does this where does the shot go and all that and Batman really allows wonderful. Oh, there's so many great set pieces, and so like the action really was driving the story in a in an interesting way, and it felt like they were kind of intermeshed more than a, a you know like other action shows where it's like okay we've hit the action scene and that's over, and now let's go back to the story. Like it all kind of I, I don't know it blended in a really satisfying way. Well, you know it's dependent on who you are. Like if you watch a guy like James Cameron, who I think is a very good director and a very good writer. Watch how his act, you know, watch Terminator or watch um, uh, Aliens or, the, you know, how those battle scenes, play. they always have, you know, a logical flow to them. You never go, well, wait a minute, why is that happening? Mm-hmm. Why are they doing that? You know, and that's really the kind of writer, I, you know, you want to be, at least I want to be. And Batman really afforded that. And then, but then I have the comedy chops too. I like, you know, I grew up on comedy, and Maniacs is just a zany comedy thing. Yeah. What were your comedy influences? I'm curious. Probably most when I was a kid, Neil Simon. Yeah. Um, some of the Woody Allen stuff. I mean, just when I was growing up, those were the real comedy plays. And then you know, just TV shows you'd watch that were funny, funny writers, and um, you know, com- it, 
you'll, you'll find when you're writing drama, if you can put in some comedy moments, that gives you more highs and lows. You know who's actually very good at that? Is Steven Spielberg. Spielberg will always find a comic moment in a very serious play, you know, where, and, and, may, and, and it, it relieves the tension. Incredibly. Like, mm-hmm. even since, like, Jaws, mm-hmm. like, there are those moments where it's just, you need that, though. Yeah, you know, there's you need that, like, flow and that release. Yeah, you want to do that with your audience. If you can, if you can put some highs and lows in it. I, I'm, Jaws is a good example, because, you know, she, he, his son is sitting on the boat, and, she go, and, and you know, she's going, oh, what are you yelling at him? Get out of the And then she looks, and she sees the shark. <laughs> get out of that boat! You, know, yeah. you get a couple of good laughs. Even them, like, singing drunkenly in the boat. Oh, you very know, funny the scene. Climax. Exactly. And then right after they're laughing, suddenly you see the shark come up, and suddenly, oh, yeah. now we're back. <laughs> yeah. so, Neil Simon used to do that. I remember I read his plays. He'd have this comedy going thing, and then suddenly it'd get dark. You know, even in Schindler's List, do you remember he got a gag? Remember the gag that he got no, in Schindler's well, List? What? It's been a while since I, I think since it came out. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, I'm assuming Steven Spielberg found, or maybe his writer found it, and Steven said, "Yeah, great." Is there's a scene where the Nazi gets lines up everybody. He says, "Someone stole the bread." So who who stole it? He says, "Okay, if you don't tell me who stole it, every thirty seconds I'm going to kill somebody." He says, "Who stole the bread?" And nobody, you know, says anything. So he shoots a guy. The guy falls dead right there in front of him. It's kind of shocking. He goes, "Okay." And this way another 30 seconds and then this young boy starts to cry and he goes over to him very calmly this Nazi SSI and he goes do you know who took the bread? kid goes yes I do he goes alright then tell me who it was and he points at the dead guy it was him <laughs> you know, and, and everybody gets a laugh out of that and it relieves some of the tension I just thought you know that, that, that's a very good technique oh yeah that's mm-hmm. so great uh, can you walk me through like kind of the process in which you kind of would break and, and write a Batman story, maybe for people who, mm-hmm. you know, don't really know how it works? Well, you know, well, again, I, I remember with Stephen King and on writing, he he said we always get together, other writers, and you sit around talking with each other. And they go, hey, where do you get your ideas? And and the truth is, he said, none of us really know. People try to say things, but none of them know. So that part, I think, is what comes from you reading a lot and watching a lot and that will become the fertile imagination ground for ideas popping into your head yeah because that you know when you're sitting you go what is this story about now once in a while a guy will bring you in and say hey you know i have an idea and or you'll be sitting and 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 when you do a series i do remember we had several bullpen sessions in the very opening of a season we all got together in a room there's like 10 of us 12 of us and we spent all day there, and people were just throwing out ideas. So, and someone's right, you know, we have a secretary who's good. And then at the end of the day, that gets sent to everybody. It's just a raw document. So everyone's going, ooh, 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 what about this? But, the, you know, first of all, you have to come up with what is the heart of the episode? What is the idea? And you have to have a very good one in your mind. And you know if it's good. Mm-hmm. You know, don't lie to yourself. Were there episodes that were pitched in, like, like kind of bullpen setting that were immediately like, no. We're not going to put that down, or everything was kind of written. Oh yeah, because it's just you don't you don't want to go no because you don't want to turn off any creativity. So Everyone like just blue sky phase. Yeah, blue sky. Everyone's got an idea. They're throwing it out, and, and you can go, okay, what about? But and it usually takes you. Oh, what about this? What if this happens? You know. Oh, that seems like the most fun part of things. That is. Yeah, I mean that that that's just raw material. Everybody bring, and a lot of times, like when I do a thousand one nights, I would say everybody come with ten ideas for a story. Mm-hmm. And then it, you, you, you sort of, and some begin to take off, and some of them, you, know, you just go, oh my God, or immediately you go, that's, that, go right away. That's a great idea. So, like, um, 
when we do like you're doing Robin's Reckoning. I think the original idea with Alan is that what would happen if Robin suddenly found out? He found the guy, you know, he'd been he'd forgotten about it, and then suddenly the guy who killed his parents. He, in one of one of the th things he's, you know, with Batman, we open up with him solving, you know, stopping some crime, whatever, and some piece of evidence comes out that re he suddenly realizes that's the guy who killed my parents. And now he's going to go get him, and, and, and Batman's trying to call it's him. It's such an incredible episode, yeah. by the way. Uh, it's I love it. Well, it's got a lot of heart to it too. And Batman could have the same could 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 have the same thing. And you know, one of the things that is really fun with Batman is like, let's say he finds the guy who killed his parents. He's going to blow him away. And now, does he become the thing yeah. that he's tried to stop? So now he stands at the abyss, at the dark side. He stands just like Luke Skywalker. You know, in other words, do I, in in taking revenge or in bringing justice by the act of doing that? Because I'm I can't be the judge, jury, and the executor. Who am I to appoint myself? That there is a law, but if I transcend that and make myself, do I now become the thing that I hated so much? And that's the hard part. You know, that's that adds. You know, those are thematic elements. That you always want, you know, you can always tell a story, but if you can work in thematic elements under it, then you start to really get layers and it becomes very powerful story. Mm -hmm. There are other things that become involved, you know, that audiences begin to resonate with. But once once you have sort of an idea, going back to your original question of yes. how do you write a, a, an episode, then you begin to beat out the story. And to me, this is the if if you're a good writer. You know, anybody can write, you know, if you have a sense of dialogue and a, you know, and a sense of story, you can take an outline and write a story. But what is the story? That's the hard part. What, how does the story, and you write what I would call a beat sheet. You go, this happens, this happens, this happens. And there's a, there's a method to that too. If you thought, and who, I heard the guys from South Park talking about this, but I think it's widely known among writers. If you're writing a story that says, this happens, and then this happens, and then after that, this happens, you're screwed. You're in trouble. Stop right there. The way it must go is, is either, you know, the words you want are because and therefore. In other words, this happened. And because of that, this then happened. But then this happened, so then this had to happen. You see, and if your beats don't go like that, stop. All right. So, you know, we open up with some inciting event, which is really fun. You know, yeah, you can do your set piece. And, you know, you see some, I think I did it with um, Sub-Zero, you know, you see some woman walking along and this guy takes her purse and she mm -hmm. screams for help and he runs and he's in the back alley. He spills the contents and he's going through it and all of a sudden you see this dark shadow dumb, dumb, lower down behind him. Boom, knocks him out, get you know. And when the police come running, you see they, they throw the flashlight and they see this thing go and he's gone. And there's this guy laying there unconscious with all the contents of the purse spilled out of it, you know. That's how you start it, right? So it's something cool. But in the process of that, now you have because that happened, this like some guy stole someone's purse or knocked somebody out, and Batman Robin, you know, stopped him. Then they find a piece of evidence. Something happens that now, and because of that, it causes Robin to suddenly investigate it. And Robin, and he investigates it. And when he does, he finds out that this thing happens. So because now that he knows that happens, what's he going to do? 
He's going to go try to find that, right? And so, so everything leads in a logical manner. Mm-hmm. And that's how you want to take it. Now, once you have the beats of the story, and that can be a page or two pages, depending if you're doing an episode sure. or movie. Once you have those beats laid out, and everybody agrees, and, and, and you will just know, you go, ah, oh, this is a great story. And if you're doing it right, it gets better and better and better. And generally, you know, elements you like to incorporate, I, I think, are your character has an inciting event. And, and it depends on the genre, you know, if you're doing a romantic comedy versus a horror story, versus, you know, Batman's, you know, kind of an action. Mm-hmm. So in that, inside that structure, um, you have an inciting event for him that sends your character running down the spine of the story. In the process of that, he picks up allies and he picks up, you know, traitors, you know, people that, people who are not just a villain but a traitor. I once heard Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown and all that, Townsend, I think, he said something that was pretty cool. If you can figure out what your lead character is afraid of, but what he's really afraid of, you have the makings of a great character and a great story. Now, with Batman, what's, what is Bruce Wayne afraid of? What's Batman afraid of? Really? Now, if you can figure that out, you're going to have fun. I mean, I feel I'm going to take a stab at it. Go ahead. <laughs> and you tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like he's afraid of becoming that which he fights. That's a good one. I like that one. Uh, crossing gives, a line. Gives him a conscience, doesn't it? Yeah. Because I think that's why he sets up those rules is to protect himself too. Because he's because he's he's got a conscience. He's 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 a, an educated man. He does have to say, you know, is what I'm doing wrong here? Yeah. But <clears throat> that's more cerebral. Now let's get viscerally. Okay. What would be a visceral fear for him? Not dying, I don't think. No, I think he he's able to. I think he's almost like stone faced about that. Like he that's would right. die for a cause. I feel like he'd be afraid of like losing the people who like he's like his city. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's still well. That, on the city on the side on the on the city side, yeah, he wants to help people. But I would say take it to his origins. His origin, what what created Batman was a little boy mm-hmm. who was with his parents going to a movie night. They're coming yeah. down to an alley, and this guy comes out with a gun and he kills his parents. And Batman was just a little boy. He was all of ten years old. Mm-hmm. He was powerless to stop this guy. And that's what he sees as he grows up. The city is under siege by criminals who are not afraid mm-hmm. of the courts. They're not afraid of the policemen. They're not afraid at all. And everyone feels helpless. And that's why when he realizes that the, you know, the, law is, the law is ineffective against these guys. You know, we have to have search warrants and we have to have rules that we play by. And they don't play by any rules. So he will go only to, when I write Batman, and I remember having this discussion with Al a long time ago, Batman will never show up to something where the police can handle it. He'll let the police, he'll only do it when it's something the police, like let's say the police can't go in and search that apartment. He'll swing in, mm-hmm. go in, and he'll find that evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got scared by a law. By a law, yeah, by a law. <laughs> that, that, see, that, and, see he'll, he'll do what the criminals will do. He'll, you know, but his fear, my thing is, 
is a loss of, of control or power. In other words, to find himself powerless in a situation, that's what he feels. That makes total sense. I yeah. mean, that's why he's prepared himself, you know, athletically Absolutely. and like emotionally kind of protected himself. He'll never I think have a you relationship. Can, you, it, see, now you're off and running. I can see yeah. you're a great writer because he, he, I mean, you just took it to several levels. Is number one, why did he go out and train himself in the martial yeah. art? And almost zen-like, almost like fanaticism because he will never, ever again put himself in a position where he is powerless to stop somebody from killing somebody he loves. And what's great about what you just said is that gets in his way of having a life. Mm -hmm. He can't even have a, lo a love life. So now I could say, why don't we do an episode where Batman or Bruce Wayne falls in love with somebody? And he's suddenly, and he's talking to Alfred, and he's never been happier. Mm -hmm. And Alfred says, this is it for you. You finally, and this is a wonderful woman. Now, drag him back into Batman when he doesn't want to go. He's given up being Batman. But now events push him where if he doesn't do that, something terrible, you know, he's got to make the choice. And by the end of it, he does. And I would say at the end of that episode, you open that episode with him sitting there at, at, at you know, in some beautiful little cafe with this woman, proposing to her, giving her, you know, she's beautiful. And then at the end of that episode, you go back to that cafe where they're sitting and, and we're looking over the shoulder shot of him. And she's, you know, she's got kind of, you know, just like a, a fine face. It's nice, everything, you know. And we see him back with her. And then you see the bat signal up in the sky. And they turn, they go, oh, look, it's the bat signal. And before he had left to go do that, we see Batman swinging across the sky. And then we do a reverse shot, and it's another guy. Hmm. And she's with somebody else. And, and you know that, that Bruce Wayne had to make that decision. You see, that, that's the great part about the, the, the Batman character. Yeah. Is you, you can get into him. So um, that, I mean, going back to the original, say, how do you write these things? If you can find those kind of elements, those aren't the story, but they're what layers into the story. Once you have that beat sheet, and I can't emphasize enough, don't go further until the story is right. Because you will make real nightmares for yourself. I heard John Laster interviewed. And he said... He says, you know, I'm the, I'm the creative head of the Walt Disney Company now because he ran Pixar too. And he said, so I get to make those decisions. And he said, I will never let a movie move forward until the story is right. And that's why those Pixar movies are so great is those stories are so rich and so strong. So don't get off and writing and go writing off in dialogue and all that. You know, that's all fun and games. But make sure your story is right. And if your story is not right, sit down and think about it, start reading other things that are in that genre, look at, you know, because there are structural elements which really do work depending on the genre you're writing in. Mm -hmm. And you can cross genres, you know, I mean, Jim Cameron's very good at mixing action suspense with a horror movie, you know, but you can find, like in horror, the, the ghost is very important, you know, in certain things, what we call a ghost is what's haunting your character today of something that happened in the past. Right. Look at Vertigo. Vertigo is a guy who's haunted in the present by a failure in the past. You know, so that's one element. So you can, you can study. There's a guy named Truby, John Truby, who has a course, and he discusses these kinds of elements. And they're just basically structural elements that can help you. But once you have that beat sheet, then I would, I would move someone to outline. It's now going to outline. And the outline is where you take each of those beats and really flesh them out. It can be paragraphs and paragraphs wrong of what happens in each of those scenes, even some dialogue. 
So now when I read that outline, I just know exactly how this is going to go. Then I say go to script. Well, if you have a great outline, the script is just should be really easy. Could be easy. Now you're getting the nuts and bolts of what's the camera angle. What's you know because you do a lot of gags in camera angles or a lot of shocks in camera angles. You can do the that's where all the rich dialogue comes from. And you know, as a writer, you really want to be able to have dialogue that makes people sound like who they are. And you know, when you have a staff of writers writing on a series as a story editor or a showrunner like Alan, you or me now, you have to make sure everybody's writing the same character. Can you imagine if Kevin Conroy's character of Batman sounds, you know, his speech patterns sound like one thing in one episode, then you get the next episode and he behaves much differently. Right. That will kill you. You know, you know who Homer Simpson is. You know who Marge is. You know who Bart, you know, those guys. So you have to keep a very consistent sense. If you're writing a movie, obviously, it's just a one shot, unless you're going to do sequels. To sure. Now I'm talking about writing in television. And in television, you have to be very economical, very economical in dialogue. And at, just as a general note in dialogue, the shorter you can say something, the more powerful it will be. If you find you're writing big, long you know, things of dialogue, you know, you need to edit. You need, if, if a character can say something, like, uh, you know what's a great example of that? What? Is The Fugitive. With, um, with Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford. There is a scene where he's chasing Harrison Ford's character and he goes down a sewer in a bridge and he comes in, so he goes chasing him through these sewers that end up in that big dam that he has to jump off if you've seen the movie. Yep. It's, great, oh, yeah. it's a great moment. And what they do is Tommy Lee Jones falls, and, and you know it's the first time they actually meet, which is an important moment because, you know, it's about this guy chasing him and, and finding as he gets clues, he finds out Harrison Ford, you know, really is the bad guy he thought he was, but Harrison Ford gets his gun, and he points the gun at him. Now you have the scene between these two characters, and it's this whole scene about he lied about me. I'm trying to find the one-armed man, and you know, and I didn't kill him. You know, he says, "Put down the gun, guy." And as they went through all of this dialogue, they found it, they pared it down, it came down to just two lines of dialogue. And Harrison Ford looks at him and he goes, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones looks at him and says, I don't care. That's really what it gets down to. Yeah, they're both it's, saying... I'm a policeman, <laughs> you were convicted in a court of law, my job is to bring you in. You making a case to me doesn't mean anything to me. Now, I could, I could say all, just like I did. I could say, listen, I'm just a policeman. You were going to court. About. But when you get it down to that, that's really powerful. And great writing for that. And so that, I mean, my advice to people who want to be good writers is see how much you can cut out, how you can edit. Plus, in television, you just don't have that much time. Sure. You know, something I, uh, another thing I, I, it made me chuckle is uh, um, Comden and Green. Adolph Green and Betty Comet both passed away. Very successful writers in, in movies of musicals and on Broadway. They were singing in the rain, blah, blah, blah. but they were, you know, they knew how to put a good book together. And someone when asked, you know, they they made a point of saying this way: What's the per when you're if you if you were writing a scene right now, you're on you're on the scene mm -hmm. uh, in a Batman. Show, I'd say, what's the purpose of this scene? And you know what they would say? It's to get you to the next scene. Now, I know that seems a little glib, but that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Is If you're going down the spine of the story right, what's the next logical thing that really should happen? And that's where you should go. 
And that is going to lead you, just like I said, this happened, and because of that, this happened. But now, uh-oh, so, suddenly something I didn't expect happens, and now that causes me, did this happen? You know? And so that's, that, that's the whole, going back, kind of the thing I'm saying is, as you're writing these things out, the being those stories and those scripts, is why, why are you having this scene? Ask yourself. Is it just spinning its wheels? Mm-hmm. I see so many writers who give a false beat. Oh, well, whenever I'm revising something, I'm like, oh, well, this this isn't serving a purpose. So, like, I'm having fun in the scene, but this is for me, not for the story. And what do you have to do when that happens if you're a writer? You ever heard that saying, you got to kill your darlings? Yep. <laughs> I had, um, I wrote a musical, and um, which got, you know, produced up in Seattle. But, the, you know, over on the Disney lot, they did a thing for the ASCAP. Uh, they developed new musicals. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked, and, you know, he's very successful. He said something that was really interesting because I had a character in that, in in the story that wasn't really that important. You could, read. and he said, make your characters fight for their existence hmm. in your story. If they don't earn their existence, kill them, get them out, don't put them in there. And he was right. And so I went back and, and I really fleshed that character out. So that's another thing. Like you say, if I'm if I'm writing a scene, and the scene doesn't really play out anywhere like 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 Batman goes down there and that's a dead end well is that dead end important to have or do it's just a oh we thought we had that no we go over here to do it now well that was a false beat does right. it really pay off or is it just you know wait you're just spinning your wheels you know you can you can do that you see it moves you're just adding time. unnecessary yeah. tension yeah and try not to do that try I mean you know uh, you see it happen all the time I don't know if it kills your story but it doesn't make it great if, well, if, that's what I love about the show mm, is that it's mm, very economic and it mm. is quiet when it needs to be yeah. uh, and I feel like a lot of that kind of you know television show adult or you know aimed at kids these days kind of misses sometimes I, I feel like there, uh, there's a lot of talkiness or, or just like you know Unnecessary filler, and I guess, and that's that's those are inexperienced writers, or those are writers whose editors are, you know, who are in a hurry, or not. You know, really, the the big part of writing is in the editing. You know, I read Neil Simon's book on uh, rewrites, and he said, I, you know, I think he re, he wrote God Couple like thirty times or forty times, hmm. and he said, yeah, Shakespeare gets it right the first time, the rest of us, you know, don't. And so that's what you have to ask yourself when you're writing a script, when you go back, what can I take out, and whatever you can, t- if you can, if you can take it out. And, and the story still remains the same, then you probably should take it out. And the other thing you might want to think about is if you can show it instead of say it, you're much better off. You know, if you have act where characters giving you exposition and explaining something to you, like the old Greek tragedy, sure. it, it's not half as interesting as showing it happen. You know, then the audience is more engaged. You know, if you, if you have to tell the audience what, what, what the moral of your story is, then you didn't do a very good job telling your story, did mm-hmm. you? That's why I would say in writing, you know, adverbs are not your friend. If you have to say, you know, like those Tom Swift things like, what are you talking about? He said jokingly. You know, you shouldn't have to say jokingly. If, you, if, if, if what you say, if, if what, you know, the context of your story, and he goes, what are you talking about? I would get that from the context of what you wrote. And do you think, like, in screenwriting that applies to what those, like, parentheticals, like, essentially giving actors direction? Like, Be careful on those. Yeah. Because if you, guess what happens when you tell an actor what to do? I feel like they get... He's going to do it, isn't he? Yeah, but then that's, Now, but that yeah. actor is a, great, is a good actor, right? And he may have something much better than you thought. And what if you, like, if, if you underline a word, you know, if Batman says, you know, I'm not going to do that this time, and you go, I'm not going to do that this time, you know, the actor's going to do that. 
But if you had just put it there and with the context of the story, the actor might do a much better reading than you dream. Don't tell the actor how to do his job. Yeah. Now, if it is important, if it really is important to, to the story and all that, you can do that, but be very sparing. You know, be really, really careful. The other thing, too, I tell, act, I tell writers, especially in comedy, we've done an exhaustive study, and the proof is now in. Um, regardless how many exclamation points that you put after your sentence, it doesn't make your joke any funny. And it really irritates me when people do that. You know, someone shouts, I have 40, you know, exclamation points. What's the actor supposed to do with that? Oh, well, there's, you know, there's, there's 10 exclamation points as opposed to one. So Truly, I shout that's one of the most confusing things. Mm -hmm. Whenever I audition for, like, in a lot of voiceover, there's a lot of, like, there's a moment, there's a line where there's, like, five exclamation points, and it's like, I don't really know. This to now, me there seems were four. Like screaming. Four would make sense. Yeah, so if I do four, <laughs> do, I, do I do? Do you want four exclamation points or five exclamation? You know, come on. And you know, and uh, when you're dealing three, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when you're dealing with professionals like you'd like Maurice Lamarche, like Rob Paulson, like Tress McNeil, like you know Jeff Ben, you know all these fantastic voiceover actors that we get to work with. Believe me, they they can bring it. So, you know, you 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 have to give them great writing, great jokes, great stories and all that. But then when you get into the, you know, you, as a writer what you want to do is paint, you know, an action sequence, you paint the, the picture, at least in animation, because you got a guy drawing it. And he's not maybe an actor. Mm -hmm. So you've got to sometimes really stage it for him. But you know, if you're working with guys at Pixar, or some of these guys over at, you know, like I've worked at Disney at, at, at Warner Brothers, who really know how to stage something, you know, I did something, I, I, I wrote a song, and we did, and, and Teddy Newton, who did all the character designs for The Incredibles, and I mean, he's just like a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, I'd written the song, and then I wrote this script with it. And in the script, I was telling him what to, and he looked immediately at the song, he says, no, 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 I, I know exactly what to do. Now that guy's a blessing, because he takes it, and he brings the genius of what he does. If you're telling him where to put the camera, you're you know, you're, you're, you're limiting him. So if you have someone who's a little inexperienced or something, and then you can help, you know, like a couple of times I would have Batman in the Batcave and he's looking at something and you'd say, he rubs the back of his neck as he's thinking. Well, mm -hmm. okay, you know, that, that yeah. but if you have someone who really knows what they're doing, you don't need to tell him, you know, he will figure out. And certainly live action, where I have a real actor. Sure. I'm not going to tell a real actor to rub the, you know, he, you know, he rubs his forehead wondering what, you know, you don't do that. So the, the, the script should be about the story, the dialogue, you know the witticism of it, and then once in a while the, the parentheticals is, would be my advice. Yeah, I, I know that you're kind of you know we're running out of time. Is there anything you wanted to talk about uh, before we wrap up with your experience in general on the series or or overall? Uh, with well, it just was a great honor. It was a great honor to work on. I mean, it was my first show. It broke in. I learned a lot on that show, and I really attribute it to guys like Alan Burnett, certainly Paul. Um, and Eric and you know the people could I would give a great shout out to Jean McCurdy she was mom at that studio you know she ran the Warner Brothers studio from the business side she's the president and so she cultivated the environment that we all you know she the person at the top creates the environment that everybody works under and she created this fertile ground Tom Ruger was in charge of all of the in fact Tom Ruger actually the first script I wrote he had written on he wrote some, Tom just wrote some terrific scripts from Batman. Yeah, he moved on mostly to comedy, right? Yeah, Tom Tom just didn't have the, you know, he was spread too thin. I mean, Tom was running that whole organization with all those shows that were going on. 
So Batman just kind of fell to Alan after all. But in the beginning, I read a couple of Tom scripts and they were just terrific scripts. Um, I don't know if they got done. There was one, I will tell you, called The One and Only Gun Story. Because, you know, we're doing a kid's show. And we have BSP, which is Broadcast Standards and Practices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they serve a valuable purpose that if something is too violent, too bloody, too inappropriate for children, they'll say, you can't do that. This is because of your audience. Because of the network and who we are, this is a children's network and all that. Because with Batman, you, you know, you're kind of pushing the envelope because you have villains with guns and kill people. And um, what was the point I was going to make with... Um, uh, the gun story? Oh, the one and only gun story. They had to be very, very careful. But it was a brilliant story about... And Tom worked on, I think, a guy named Garen Wolf. I, I didn't know the people who were, because I had first come in. But imagine this. It opens up in a, in a rock quarry out in the middle of, you know, some up in Washington or something. You know, it's some, some weird place where they're mining ore. And this, in, you know, and it's a big corporation with the big shovels on it. And some Indian walks out. What are you doing here? This is our sacred burial ground. You know, you're not allowed to, and the guy goes, yes, yeah, sue us, you know. That'll only cost you a couple hundred thousand dollars. We'll see you in court. In the meantime, they keep doing And so then we, we, we see the ore come out, and it goes into the black furnace, and it gets turned into the rivulets of such, and it comes down, and we, we just track this whole thing until it becomes a gun, becomes a pistol. And that pistol gets sold. And the entire episode is from the point of view of the pistol, animation-wise, right? So in other words, the pistol gets get, gets, go, goes to, you know, suddenly we're, we're looking down, a, bit, a severe downshot on this guy down there, and then we go wide, and... He's looking up at the pistol on the rack, and the guy goes, well, I'll take that one. He buys it, and he kills the guy who sells it to him. And it, it turns out it's, it's um, what's the Joker's name before he becomes the Joker? Oh, Jack Napier? Yes, Jack Napier. Yeah. And he kills the guy. With the, and, then, and then, like, suddenly we'll go to a black screen, right? You're just looking at black, and suddenly this white window opens up, and you see this big hand coming at you. And then we cut through, and we're in a car, and he's reaching into the glove department. See, it's what the, it's what the gun sees. And basically, it's the gun that kills Batman's parents. Hmm. And, uh, so Is that the finale or the climax? No, no, you, you find out that's the gun that kills okay. Batman. And, and, and Bruce Wayne finally gets that gun. And this gun is just infused with evil from the sacred burial ground, whatever, you know. And he ends up going back and throwing it, you know, into the fire or, back, or that, 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 you know, returning it to where it came from. You know, it's really cool. Never got done. Never got that. That's such a cool, very it's a like experimental story. Experimental story. It was just a great idea, and I kept that script. I just threw it in you know a box. Well, years later, years later, you know, fifteen years later, the show's done, and and the Batman series is now coming out in um, in DVD form and all that. So they called to interview me as one, of, and then. And I brought up this thing, and they go, oh my God, you have that script? Because that script was lost. Nobody ever had, you know, Warner Brothers has moved on. That script is nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I have it. It's called the one and only gun script. I have the one and only script of the one and only gun script. <laughs> and they said, oh my God, could we get it from you? I said, let me find And I just dug around, and I found it in a box. And I gave it back to Warner Brothers. And I think 
they were go- he was going to include it in as a bonus material. I don't know if it made it into it. I think it, it made it on but, there. But I know that Alan also mentioned that he was like, I think it's on the DVD, and I was like, I know I've. Come oh, so Alan DVDs. talked about it too. He spoke, but not as detailed yeah. about it. Yeah, because Alan. That's before Alan came on board. Alan was, you know, he was brought in to run Batman. But I, when I first came on board, there were two other people doing it. So do you and, not have the script anymore? Oh like, no, I, of course I have it. I right. gave it to them. They immediately made copies of it and 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 returned it to me bound. Beautiful. It's a thank you. And, uh, you know, I was just happy to, you know, if I have it, they can have it. They should release a book, honestly, like compile, like, the lost episodes of Batman. Yeah, because what they are are episodes that were lost because they were too dark or too much for that series for the kids. And they would play to an older crowd. But the kids who watched it are like you are now adults. And they were really wonderful stories. Oh, yeah. People would eat it up. Yeah. I mean... I, I don't know. I feel like everything coming back. I feel like there's so much attention on properties of from that time that I would love to see some sort of revival, uh, selfishly. <laughs> but I don't know if that would ever happen. Well, you know what I found out. I mean, there was a golden time over at Warner Brothers just because of what was going. You know, Disney had their brand of what the, you know princesses and things like that. Sure. And Warner Brothers, because of DC, went for what Alan calls men in tights, he always laughs about it, but you know, the, the darker thing. And, and then we went really zany with, with Animaniacs, and you know, it was kind of like a revival of the old Looney Tunes, but done in a modern setting. And um, that I found when I wrote Batman, because see, I'd never written for animation before, I didn't know anything about animation. Writing for ba- that, and then writing songs for all those animation shows, is what I, I wrote for myself, you know, for adult. And what you find out is kids are a lot smarter than you think they are. Yes. You know, if you write down to a kid like Barney, you know, like who's playing for preschool or whatever, that will go to one audience. But if you write up to kids, kids go up. You know, kids are really smart. And they get stories, they get, you know, they, they, they get hip ideas, you know. And I, and, I, and I also think it's kind of educating them to what is good storytelling, what's good writing. Absolutely. It's important. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that this show and like you know all the shows that you've worked on are basically quality shows, <laughs> and I feel like spoke to that and influenced probably so many other you know creative writers you know what have you after the fact. But uh, well, it's an honor to have done that. You know, I tell you one of the the big joys in my life. You know, because we're just we're doing our jobs, writing one script yeah. at a time, writing one song at a time. Well, you know, just trying to do the best we can. But I I go now. We, we have a concert series where I'll play a lot of the songs with Rob Paulson singing and Tress and mm-hmm. Jess will come along and all that. And afterwards, we will, we'll either meet with people, sign autographs, that kind of thing, take pictures with people. And I have a lot of people who will come up to me and say, oh my God, that song really affected and, and it's really nice for me. Well, especially the songs too, like they stick with you. Well, I have to say, you know, I, and I've said this to audiences before, that as writer, you know, Rob and Jess, they get out in front of the, you know, the crowds of a lot. Certainly as an actor, you're, you're standing on stage listening to the audience. As writers, as composers, um, and I would say for animators too, people draw, we sit in a room in a studio all by ourselves and we create these things within four walls writing, but we never really get to know how it affects the audience out there. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a treat for me when I go play before, you know, we have these concerts, I get to actually see the audience's reaction. Or like in an interview like this, when I talk to someone who's, who tells me, oh, this is how that affected me, I would ordinarily have no way of knowing that. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a real joy, and, and, and I know I can speak for a lot of writers, does 
does our hearts good when we hear people say, yeah, you know what you wrote really had an impact on me or it affected the way I thought on something Huge or it inspired enough. me to be a right, you know, do something myself. That's nice. That's icing on the cake for us. Oh, that's great. Thank mm. you so much for yeah. doing it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, that's that. Thanks for listening to another extra long Batman the Animated Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on iTunes. You can donate to keep the show going over at BTASpodcast.com slash donate, or just send it via PayPal to the show email, BTASpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at BTASpodcast and at HeyJustin. And remember, tweet at me with your favorite Batman the Animated Series or new Batman Adventures memories over the next week so you can be included in the anniversary episode. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Triela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast. Thanks to my guests, Paul Jay and Randy Rogel. Obviously, the biggest thanks, though, goes to This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, who was uh, actually kind of searching around my closet for a little bit, just moaning, Nora! Well, Tori, I hope you found her, whoever she is. All right, until next episode, see you in two weeks, guys.